Fox Spots and Chair Shots. And people, just to start off, if y'all haven't, go subscribe to Fox Spots and Chair Shots on all platforms to make sure we get in here on Fox Spots and Chair Shots. One of the hottest podcasts out here. Definitely from the spotlight. DJ Savage represents the takeover all day. And Fox Spots and Chair Shots, check Savage! Hello, all my people. If you're watching live, checking us out on YouTube, or listening on your favorite podcast provider, you're most definitely my people. Welcome to another episode of Botch Pods and Share Shots. We still have high hopes of delivering quality wrestling content, and if not, we'll sprinkle in hosts from other podcasts. You know, so we still get over. I'm your host, a chef by trade and a mark by choice. I am the Will Grant. I'm glad to be here on this journey. And tonight, the journey is we're going to talk about the three faces of Foley. Joining me is the founder of the Geeks and Noob Network, host of the Geeks and Noob Podcast, one of the hosts on the crazy popular panda wrestling company, the one, the only, Superbeard, Vince Hoover. Vince, what's up, man? How are you? Thanks for coming on chat with some wrestling, bro. I'm having a fun... I, I have a soundboard, so I, I have way too much fun on this, but I'm so happy that you let me on. Uh, this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, and I look forward to it. I'm, I'm glad you're here, my friend. Joining me, as always, is a man who comes with his own disclaimer, and that is the opinions of the LSU guy, or his and his and your own, and do not reflect those of Botch Pods and Share Shops or the Rivet City Radio Podcast Network. Bobby Mack, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited about talking about Foley. Like, it kind of reminds me of, like, just, like, this crazy paradox with him. Uh, you know, almost like if Pinocchio ever said, my nose will grow now. <laughs> I don't understand anything you say most of the time. But... Perched upon her Iron Throne, as always, she is the Beyonce to my Hova, she is the Bonnie to my Clyde, she is the brains behind the operation, she is the boss bitch, Miss Allison Siegel. Al, how are you? I'm good. Glad to not be bored after, you know, a mediocre Super Bowl. No, was it mediocre? I thought, okay, the parts I watched and cared about the commercials were mediocre. It was, it was okay-ish. Okay, before we get going, there's a few housekeeping notes I need to announce, because we do those kinds of things now. Uh, this coming week, Tuesday, uh, Valentine's Day, 2 23 uh, I will be hosting as a guest host on the Putting You Over Network in place of standing streamer. Him and the fam are taking some time off, so you can find me over there on Tuesday. I will be interviewing... Uh, independent superstar Vinny Pacifico at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then on Thursday, we're taking trivia on the road. We will also be doing trivia on Thursday night on the Putting You Over Network on Thursday night. Uh, that one will be after the World Elite stream ends. So like 8.45, 9 o'clock, we'll hit trivia on Thursday night over on Putting You Over. Uh, so we've got those two things to, to talk about. Um, I have to plug... The website, go to botchpotsandchairshots.com, leave a five-star review, give us a comment, tell us how great we are, how terrible we sound. Either way, it helps the algorithm. But, straight to business. Uh, Super Beard Vince, this is your first time on the show. I'm going to ask you this question. I always ask it the first. It's always the way we lead it off, kind of our icebreaker. Uh, what has you pissed off for greatness this week in the world of professional wrestling? What kind of has you the most worked up this week. It could be anything. Gear, a match, an entire fucking promotion, a whole card. Like, what has you worked up this week more than anything? This is too easy of an answer because if anybody happened to watch our first full episode of Friday Night Fight Night this past week, we've added Rampage to our SmackDown watch along, revamped the show, did a whole thing. So we watched Rampage this past week, right? 
show's going great. Having a fun time. Great episode. And then suddenly the acclaimed got thrown into the best friend uh, Jared Lethal feud for some reason, even though they just... First off, them losing the tag titles on Dynamite pissed me off because it was just stupid. Hey, the hottest thing we have going in the entire fucking federation... Let's take the belts off them for no reason whatsoever and put it on the ass boys. And then we're going to stick them in a feud they don't belong in for no apparent reason whatsoever. Uh, I, if, if anybody wants to go back and either on the PWC Twitch or on the Geeks and Noobs Twitch or even on my YouTube uh, TGN Networks, go watch the last 10 minutes or so of the episode. Like, of the episode, not the ending, end stream screen because I accidentally left that running for, nine, for 10 minutes. So go, like, 20 minutes back. Um... And just watch my face and everybody else react to the acclaim coming out and getting involved in that. Because that was, this is this is Tony Khan, Mr. Two-Time Booker of the Year. And it was the one of the worst bookings I've seen in a whole week. Like just between Wednesday and then Friday, it was awful. So yeah, that's a very easy pick for me. I didn't necessarily disagree with the ass. I don't. I don't disagree with the Ass Boys being transition champions if it leads to FTR getting the belts and then getting an FTR acclaimed feud. Because we know if with the Ass Boys having the belts, if FTR shows back up on AEW TV, they're already primed and ready to go for a feud. But that's a big if, because the contracts are still up in the air. Well, here's the thing. They said that they were taking time off April, and then they would make their decision on whether they get a new contract with AEW or go somewhere else. Wink, wink. And that would be the last contract they signed. They're it's my favorite. It's, it's been heavily rumored that they're Triple H boys and that they're they're talking about going back. But even if they do go back to AEW, they're not coming back until April. Like, that was their official announcement. He said, you know, Dax Hardwood has announced that on his podcast that they are taking off until April and will not wrestle again until April. So you mean to tell me that on a random Dynamite episode, you're going to have the ass boys beat the acclaimed, your hottest commodity in all of your of your promotion right now besides MJF, and then, and then make them hold the titles till April? That doesn't make any sense. Also... Versus FTR is a much better match than the Ass Boys versus FTR, hands down. Like, no offense to those guys, but hands down, much, much better match. Period. So, and you don't have to have a heel in that feud because they're going to just make take jabs at each other. So, yeah, I, I feel it was, a, it was an incredibly stupid decision. And in fact, uh, as they like to say... That is one big pile of shit. <laughs> one big pile of shit. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Mr. Shoe Guy, what um, has you pissed off for greatness? I just think Triple H has got to be feeling buyer's remorse at this point. Like, all these people that he brought back, um, just, I don't know, they're not doing it for me, and I just can't see that they're doing it for a lot of other people. Um, you know, Chelsea Green, uh, one of them, um, you know, just, I don't know, like, they're, they're, they made her lose in the Royal Rumble, like, within, like, 30 seconds. Eight then they seconds. bring in... Yeah, 10. Eight. Uh, so, it was eight. Okay, so just so you guys know, my exaggeration was, know. you know, 
what I would how you normally talk to a woman. I'd be like, yeah, that was the best, you know, 30 seconds of your life. And, and reality. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, like he's got to be having buyer's remorse. Like there's all these people that he brought back, like Karrion Cross, for instance, as well. Like they're not getting over the way that I don't know. I think it's proving that WWE had the right to terminate them when they did. And I think he's he wasted a lot of money bringing them all back, putting them all back under contract. And I think uh, I think that if Vince is going to take back over that, I think he'd be justified to get rid of them all again. Do you think that Triple H is running into, uh, I've used this as a critique towards the other guys. Uh, do you think Triple H scooped up a lot of these loose talents uh, that were kind of uh, playing free agent for a while after they got released and now Triple H has an inflated roster in Connecticut and he might be running out of TV time for all of them? Well, yeah, because none of them have personality. Like, even a guy like, you know, you give him a name like Madcap Moss, one, the, the thing that they tried to develop under Vince McMahon with him was terrible, and now it's even worse that he's still called Madcap Moss, and he's just coming out there, and he's now the number one contender to like, the Intercontinental Championship. Like, do I do I have any, like, thought that uh, Gunther is going to lose to him? Like, no. Like, there's no chance. So, um, I don't know. It just – it. I think Triple H, he's putting the cart before the horse. He, you know, developed all these guys in NXT, and once Dusty Rhodes passed away, the personality levels stopped. And that class that came before the Garganos and stuff like that, great personalities and are still getting over where this Gargano class and these other guys coming in. And even, you know, again, that's why they were fired in the first place, and carrying across was obvious. Superbeard, do you think there's an issue with the roster size versus the amount of TV time? Do you think that's one of the reasons – Using Karrion Cross as an example since uh, Bobby brought him up, do you think the correlation with people getting over with the crowds correlates with the amount of time they have on the TV screen? You're muted, Bubba. I must have hit the button. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't think it's quite the same as what Tony has. Tony has filled his toy chest of action figures to 10 times capacity, whereas with Triple H, yeah, he brought a few people back, but he's not hired anywhere near the same amount of people that Tony Khan scooped up. The reality is, Karrion Cross came into NXT after Dusty passed away, and he was over. Came to the main roster, and Vince butchered his, his gimmick. Now that he's been brought back, unfortunately, they're trying... For some reason, Triple H has decided instead of taking him back to what he was at NXT, they were going to try to let him evolve again. Sometimes, it's always great, and Chris Jericho is the perfect example of, it's always great to evolve. Most of the time. There are exceptions to that, and one of those exceptions is a guy like Karrion Cross. He needs to go back to that killer that he was at NXT. Shave the head again, the, just the killer Karrion Cross we had in NXT, and he'll get over. Um... <clears throat> I think the problem with, like, say, Gargano and them, it's not so much TV time. It's getting stuck in a in a in a feud with the Miz. Like, Miz has become the gatekeeper, but it doesn't always work, and it didn't work here. But as they're rebuilding the way, in a way, it's gonna it's gonna start to get over. Johnny still has such phenomenal matches that people love him. Uh, Dexter is still an over character, never having to say a word. Um, 
I think there's a couple others, like, like the return of Tegan Knox. She's got to get placed somewhere. I think the problem is not the amount of people. It's the amount of people in a short amount of time that he brought back. If he just spaced them out a little bit more and let them each develop as they came in, they wouldn't be as lost. That's something that a new booker who's never actually done it before, except for in NXT, which is just a little taste of it, is learning. He brought too many people back in a short amount of time. If he'd have spread those out a little bit more, he would have had time to develop each one and really be more hands-on with them. And he's just, and he, he made a joke about it on the 30th anniversary of Raw. He's like, this booking stuff is hard. That's a work shoot. Like, that was a work shoot. Because it is, it's hard. It's harder than he thought, running a whole billion-dollar company on the creative and talent. He's also doing talent relations. He's not just... I think my camera froze, and this happens on Zoom, so I apologize. I will fix that shortly. You're good. We can still hear you, so you can keep talking while you fix it if you want to. With a dumbass look on my face. Um, it's a great look. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, like, he's just, he's doing, I think he's doing a phenomenal job. And I think that he's just, I think he tried too much too soon. And I'll go with this shitty camera for right now while I fix the other one. But yeah, he, he's trying too much too soon. And once he, like, gets through Mania and everything and kind of realizes what he's done, I think after Mania you're going to see a focus on those people. Because one thing that happened, yes, was I, was I weirded out by Mad Cass Moss winning that? Absolutely. But I think that was literally just to give Gunther another pinfall. I thought Sant uh, Santos Escobar was going to win that, but if you saw that WWE exclusive of him and, and Rey Mysterio exchanging masks, you just you just pushed uh, 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 Santos to another level. So, Karrion Cross needs to go away for like a month, shave the head, go back to the killer gimmick. They need to stop using Rey so much whenever there's some kind of like, we need a contenders match. Throw Rey in there. <laughs> Ray, I, I feel like Ray, Ray is almost an e like, not an equal in the ring, but him and Miz share the same title. Yeah, he's kind of SmackDown's gatekeeper now. Yep. And the Gargano thing, I had to check my TV at the Royal Rumble. I thought I hit mute. When he came out, dude, the crowd was dead. All right, Miss Eagle, it's your turn. Why well, has you pissed off for greatness? Um, <clears throat> I said this the other night when we were on. Um smacking it raw um i am like i'm happy and pissed about something so i am happy that mark briscoe is on awtv i am pissed that it took his brother dying for that to happen like it is shameful i don't really think there's a whole lot we can say to that really no. <laughs> i mean that's pretty straightforward <laughs> yep dead on I actually said those almost exact same words when we saw it live on uh, the other night. We're like, it sucks that it took his brother dying for him to get here, but I'm glad he's here. Yeah. And then the thing is, like, we see how great he did. What did you say, Mommy? He did with Mark Sterling and then and then Woods and setting up that match. That promo segment was was perfect. It was great. A little bit of goofy wrestling with some serious backstory. Boom. Casual fans are locked in. Hardcore fans are locked in. Like, and it just showed, like, why was he not here before? 
Yeah. Bobby, what you got to say? I was actually the complete opposite. I thought the promo started off strong, but then I thought as it went on, I thought the mark was terrible. What about it didn't you like, though? I liked why he wasn't on TV. (coughs) Was it just a style thing, though? Did you just not like that? The style of promo that the Briscoes do? Because that was pretty spot on for the for what they've done in the past. That sounded like a Briscoe's promo. I felt like he was pretending to be a Briscoe. I didn't I didn't feel I don't know. I, I felt like his his other promos prior to this uh, national television debut, I really felt like those were more honest and like heart driven. I almost I almost felt like he was almost like WWE um like fed fed what he was supposed to say and uh, just didn't deliver as well as he normally would. I mean, came from the heart, brother. Giving what's been what's happened in his life i mean i can understand like how you know stepping back into the ring so quickly might be a little difficult he might not be a hundred percent on you know it's his first real promo without his brother so i'm sure it was emotional and lots of other things so yeah but charlie haas had to do the same thing and so did wild bill Irwin um when they're you know when their wrestling brothers you know legitimately passed away um and they both did have good pushes after their brothers passed away as well. So, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not being mean or anything about the Briscoes. I just, again, I just, I don't know. I just felt like Mark wasn't Mark Briscoe, and may, you know, maybe again, like you said, Allison, maybe it's just going to take him a little bit of time to, yeah. to you know, find find that happy spot in pro wrestling again. Because I'm sure every time he sees a ring or a locker room, he sees his brother. Yeah. Well, also, the thing with that is Mark was not always the mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. Mainly. Jay was mainly the mouthpiece. Also, they had no filter wherever they were because they weren't on TV. So, Mark, I know between the emotion of being there, the emotion of the locker room, every you know everybody in that locker room was like, hey, man, you know. They were probably still being very, like, supportive, but in a kind of almost down kind of way. Like, it was kind of enough to, like, make him emotional. And then he also had to go in there with the mindset that now it's all on me and I've got to watch my mouth. Yeah. So that I don't say something that's going to get me fired. So that first promo, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I still thought it was great. I still loved it. it, it it's, it's a mix of goofy wrestling and serious wrestling. And and if it's the same kind of slight stutter step, say a month from now, of him constantly being on TV, then maybe I'll be I'll be like, okay, maybe he's not ready for for TV. But in that first one, I'm gonna I'm gonna give him a lot. He's gonna have a lot of leeway with me as far as that goes because. Like in Charlie Haas's case and the, and the other ones, that was a big loss for them. This is going to sound really bad, but fuck it, whatever. You can put your whole disclaimer that your my views don't represent anything. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Briscoe's Jay Briscoe's the loss of Jay Briscoe is a much harder hit on the entire industry as of today than those deaths were back then. Jay Briscoe, the Briscoe brothers. If anybody who didn't know, go back and watch them. They are what should define tag team wrestling and the fact that Kofi Kingston who never worked with them never shared a locker with them watched every single thing they did and modeled himself after them as much as he could tells you so much the Briscoes really were the definition of tag team wrestling in the modern era they are the blueprint and and Jay's loss in such a a horrific way out of nowhere I think it just shook everybody to the core. It, it reminded me of Eddie Guerrero's death. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that Eddie Guerrero died. I remember, I will always remember exactly where I was. Granted, I was on a show, so it's on video, so it's 
it'll be immortal as well when I found out that Jay Briscoe died. And it's kind of that kind of impact. I, I shared a locker room with Jay Briscoe. I got to have a locker room experience with the Briscoes. I didn't work a match with them, but I got to share a locker room with them. And those guys were the sweetest human beings, Jay especially. He, they made sure they talked to everyone. I've also shared a, a, locker, a locker room with CM Punk, and he's the exact opposite. Biggest egotistical asshole I've ever met. And this was before he ever signed with WWE. Uh, biggest piece of shit ever. The Briscoes, exact opposite. They made sure to talk to everybody. They asked us, do you guys have any questions for us? Do you need any help with anything? Do you want us to work over your match with you? I'm like, oh, I'm doing a battle royal. He's like, well, what number are you going in? What number are you going out? Like, they asked me questions. Like, they were really super cool people. And so that loss, it did also hit me personally. So I think with, with a slight personal tinge, I'm even going to give Mark more leeway than most. But I think everybody's going to have to understand that. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. I apologize. Uh, I think that we're going to have to give Mark a, a little extra leash uh, on that dog collar. Uh, we'll have to give him a little extra leash at least for a few weeks as he acclimates to a, a style they've never done, really. Did you guys – so am I the only one that caught this? I'm not talking when, when Mark had that match, his first match uh, with Lethal, Jericho and his group, they weren't on the stage. And I also noticed that the Bucks almost seemed like they were, like, forced into clapping. Like, I know they were the you know front of it, but, of course, the Bucks want to be on front camera. I just felt like, I don't know, like, it did, to me, I don't know, it just felt disingenuine from the Bucks as compared to the other people. But the other part that really grabbed me was I never saw Jericho and his group on the stage during that during that time. I can't speak for anybody personally, obviously, uh, but I do know on being the elite and both of them have spoke out about their personal relationships because they feuded with the the Briscoes and had barn burners in, in the, I about said in the IWGP, in New Japan Pro Wrestling for the IWGP tag titles, uh, the six-man titles versus the elite. Uh, then they had feuds in Ring of Honor. They had feuds like in and out of the indies, PWG. Uh, I so I've I've heard Matt and Nick Jackson. I'm not a I'm not a Young Bucks guy, but I know they spoke directly on their relationships with the Briscoes, and they came through as those indie darlings together a lot in a lot of ways. And the Briscoes just never got that that rub to that next level. And uh, I don't necessarily know if they wanted it. You know, they were happy being those those road dogs. And I agree a thousand percent with Superbeard. Uh, I've had a chance to meet Jay on two different occasions. Uh, I got to meet him as recently as last July at Supercast. Um, we got to watch him work against the Rock and Roll Express at their last match in Dalton Arena. Uh, so we, we've, we've had some... Uh, I've followed them for multiple years. So it was huge for me without even having the relationship of working in the same locker room. That's just from, you know, a bird's eye perspective of somebody who knew the man personally and watched him work. I couldn't imagine what it was like to share the locker room with him at the same time because that's a totally different level of respect for him then. You yeah, know? My interpretation of the Bucks is that they, they, you know, yeah, they work with people, you know, but it's not like Midnight and Rock and Roll, like where they developed a personal relationship or, you know, these other like historical tag teams that have views. I, I don't know. My, my interpretation of the Bucks are they, 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 they don't really care about the other person as long as they get over. Well, the Bucks 
it may have just been a moment where they, you know, were tired or whatever, because it was at the end of, you know, a huge, like, they had had a match, like, not long before that, but, like, they wore J, like, armbands for, what, two weeks? I think they may even still be wearing them. So, yeah, so I think, like, I wouldn't really take into account, like, what they looked like during that moment. I mean, it's the end of the show. It's super emotional. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I wouldn't read too much into it. it. Yeah, maybe I read into it wrong, and obviously I'm not fans of them either, so. <laughs> also, yeah. I think, I think Danny, I don't quote me on this. I'll have to go back and watch, but I think Daniel Garcia was at least out there. I thought I remember seeing him in the back of the crowd of people. And I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure Jericho was there that day. He, I, was, I think he was the first match, wasn't he? Like, I feel like he, I feel like he wrestled on that show. I know that, that, like, there his when was the cruise? Was that like the week before the cruise or the week of the cruise? I can't remember. It was like two weeks before, I think. Okay, I don't know. He may have already left the arena at the time. I mean, who knows? Yeah, but I, I just I I felt like that would be like a chill of disrespect, you know? If you got, I don't I don't know. Again, I I just I just know. Jericho's a guy that you would definitely spot. In right. The crowd, and yeah. I, I didn't spot him in the crowd. And I just. I mean, like... MJF wasn't out there. I think. And that one is actually like, because I, I, I'm pretty sure MJF has worked with them. But I, I think a lot of it, what it was, is a lot of it was mainly Ring of Honor guys. Yeah. Mainly Ring of Honor guys. Guys that had worked with Ring of Honor. I don't think Chris Jericho, he might have had one or two matches in Ring of Honor. But I don't really think he had much to he do was with it. Prior to that, though, he didn't have a history with Ring of Honor. You smartass. Yeah, still only had a couple of matches. Like he only had a couple of matches. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah, they gave him the title because it's, it's, it's Chris Jericho. If he comes in, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna do that. But he didn't have a history with Ring of Honor. Is what I'm saying. Like he didn't have time with the Briscoes as much. You know, he was spending most of his time in WWE. Um, so maybe they felt like maybe certain people just felt like it wasn't right for them to come out to maybe hog the spotlight because like you said Chris Jericho would get spotted out of the crowd he's like let the guys that, that spent decades with these boys in the locker room let them have their moment let them have their hugs it's going to be emotional um, and like I said it was mainly Ring of Honor stalwarts that were on that stage and the Young Bucks were probably like like Ali said were probably just emotionally drained as well as physically beaten up because they went through a hell of a match and I'm not, I'm not a Young Bucks fan either I'm right there with you but I think that in that case, they were just probably emotionally drained and probably hated the fact that they had to be out front because Tony probably told them to go out front. Hey, your EVPs, be out front. You know, like they may have wanted to stay in the back or something. Like they didn't want to, you know, so they may have not been happy about where they were. But also it could have been like, hey, we're going to move up front because we are who we are. That's very much a possibility. I wouldn't doubt that in a second. I just think that they were just, it was just in a very emotional, because I mean, that match was what? How many days after he passed? Days after he, like it was days, yeah, like eleven days, I think. Yeah, and then, but you know, like, <coughs> the the and the rebuttal of that, and not even a rebuttal, but how many guys worked with the Ultimate Warrior in WWF or E uh, that were standing on that stage when you know after he passed away? And I don't know. I again, I maybe I'm just used to the way WWF or E does their memorials. Uh, you know, everybody's out there. Vince is obviously in the middle. Uh, Triple H and Steph is out front if they're there. Um, I don't know. It just—I don't know. I, I just felt like it was—it wasn't as big. Uh, I just didn't feel like as big as the AEW locker room is. I, that it just didn't seem like everybody was out there. 
Well, eh. Say la vie. Uh, my pissed off for greatness this week is super simple. I had a really easy wrestling week. I'm just mad that we had to push the show back two hours for a very mediocre Super Bowl. Um, Miss Siegel, I'm going to send it up to you now. News and rumors. What you got for us this evening? Um, my first one is Randy Orton is rumored to be making a return. He's been seen doing charity events, a gear maker. Um, whether this is true or not, has said that Randy has put in to have boots made. Um, my only thing about that, and Will, you and I talked about this, is that I feel like anybody who's legitimately making gear for Randy Orton would be required to have some sort of, like, NDA. And this dude... But if it, I don't know, I feel, I don't know, I don't know if I believe this guy, like, that he's the one making Randy's boots, because it's like. You, yeah, but you don't, like, a lot of guys that make gear are actually in the biz, and they work on the indies. You know, right, like in, we know that. I mean, we I know, we have yeah. a friend that, like, does gear for a lot of top people, and, like, he says, he said most of the time he's asked specifically not to say anything, not necessarily like, is he asked to sign an NDA, but like, he is specifically asked to not say anything, and I think somebody making gear for Randy would be told not to say anything. I don't know. Uh, here's, yeah. the about, here's the thing about that. It's not an officially signed NDA, it's a respect of the business kind yeah. of thing. About it. Also, Randy did an interview right before he left with injury. I believe it was with Brian Snatton, it might have been somebody else. He talked about his ring, his gear maker, including his boots. It's a woman. He's had the same person making his gear for over 20 years. Like, so where did this guy come from? Yeah. And the fact that, like, if you've been working, Randy Orton doesn't just go randomly find a new person. Because the fact is, WWE has boot makers. They have gear makers. He would just go through them. If he, if he didn't already them, have a private, like a privatized person, he would just use the company, right? Exactly. And so why would he just go to this new guy who's ne- nobody's ever heard of? Nobody's ever heard of him making his gear. And then he's going to just... And this person who's a gear maker who under- supposedly understands the business is just going to go out there and call somebody and let them know, hey, let me give you an inside scoop. What does he get out of it? Nothing, really. Just All he did was get his name out there. I think it's, I think it's a bullshit story. Now, the thing that is legitimate is his workout videos, is his charity exp- appearances, because that's all filmed. Mm-hmm. So it's a possibility, but I don't think we're going to see him back as soon as they're saying because of this gear guy. I think that's where it gets blown way out of proportion, and it's just somebody looking for clout. I know it what is. she's talking about because it was reported by Sports Kita. They were the first people that leaked it out. When I looked into the dude's Instagram story, that's when I, I messaged our buddy that makes gear, and I was like, what do you think about this as you have this kind of stuff happen regularly with him? Uh, but go ahead, Bobby. I didn't mean to cut you off, sir. That was my fault. No, no, no. I, I don't like. Did they? I guess they exposed the guy's name, the gear maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was whole ass on there. I can send you the article. Uh, there was a tweet of it in our group chat and stuff on one of the the tweeters. Uh, but uh, Sports Kita originally reported it. But I kind of thought the same thing. Like he wouldn't just randomly attach himself to some new guy because once again, Randy's one of those guys. Like. If he's going to have gear made, he's probably, like you said, had the same gear maker his entire time since he's been in OVW. Like, you're pretty fucking close to it, at least. 
Yeah, with him, with the possibility of him coming back, though, I think this might be the biggest evolution, no pun intended, of Randy Orton, because he's not going to be able to do that RKO with a bad back. No. Like, he's he's going to have to work a different style, and that'll be really interesting for Randy Orton, because since day one, other than some new tattoos and whether your hair is long or short, Randy Orton hasn't changed much. Superbeard, do you think this says anything about his career, though, if he's successful using the same equation over time? I think it says a lot about his career. He's a 14-time world champion, uh, second only to John Cena and um, Ric Flair. And in WWE, he's second only to John Cena. Um, he and like I thought about it. I remember like he started doing this promo when him and Edge started doing those promos uh, when Edge returned, and I'm like, my God, these are phenomenal. Like these should be used to teach at promo class. These are great. And then I'm like, I remember him talking. He's like, yeah, I just kind of figured out my promo style. It took me this long to figure it out. I'm all like, really? And I had to go back and watch some of his old promos. And I'm like, how'd this guy get over? Like, he wasn't good on the mic. But he was able to get over. And I think that while he worked, quote unquote, the same style, he really did evolve over time. The character. And... I equate that to John Cena because John Cena had, you know, a, a massive evolution of characters from ruthless aggression to Doctor Thugonomics to to never give up. Yet his style was the same. His ring style was the same. He didn't change his ring style. He didn't change his move set. And he is the biggest WWE superstar behind Stone Cold. Like I think he eclipses The Rock as far as because of long because of longevity, twenty years in the ring. Um, so you can evolve yourself without having to evolve your in-ring style. And honestly, as a, as somebody who has trained and has, you know, I wrestled for four years, evolving your, your, your work inside the ring is hard because you get into it. It it becomes second nature. It's, it's meant to become second nature. It's meant to become instinctual. And the fact that Randy Orton is arguably one of the best ring psychologists of the modern era he's definitely on that Mount Rushmore when it comes to ring psychology the man told a story in every single match he ever did without a single word said so, he trained Jim Cornette you had to he, he had to yeah, that OVW class was, was second to none like you think like, you want to talk about the greatest individual class to ever come out of any training school John Cena Randy Orton Brock Lesnar Shelton Benjamin Batista uh, like it's ridiculous. Like there's so many more out of that class that we don't even talk about that had easy money. money. Yeah, <laughs> like, just like so. He it, now he's gonna have to, but don't forget who is one of his greatest mentors, Ric Flair, right? Somebody he still talks to, somebody he still works with. Ric Flair has had the arguably the biggest change in ring style uh, work ever after that plane crash and breaking his back. He had to completely evolve his style, yet if you watch his old stuff before the plane crash and the stuff after, it looks like he's still doing a lot of the same moves. But he evolved in the way he landed, in the way he took things, in the way he did things, and <clears throat> the aggressiveness he hit, thing, like hitting the corner and flipping over, that kind of thing, like he, he changed the way he did that. Randy Orton, I think, can still do the RKO, but I think he's going to end up, it's going to, 
probably cause him to have to get a hip replacement, depending on how long he wrestles. But I think he's going to end up, instead of him flat-backing it, he's going to end up turning into it and maybe landing on his side. Similar to, like, when Ric Flair takes the climbing on top rope, oh, no, I'm getting slammed, he lands on his side. He never, he doesn't land on his back. He yeah, lands on his side and his hip. It's like, it's, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how he has not had a hip replacement the way he took those bumps. Like, he, oh. he never did a flat-back after the, after the plane my uh, my two cents on the Orton thing before uh, Allison gives us our next one is uh, the guy we're going to spend a lot of the conversation about after this is Foley. Foley said a lot in a lot of interviews about how you it's you learn the basics of how to bump and then you kind of evolve your bump to match your style. Your body tells you what's comfortable. After you learn the basic mechanics of it, your individual bump changes. My bump from Bobby's bump to Superbeard's bump to Allison's bump would look different from all four of us once we got through the basics of, oh, we're back. You know, like once you get past the basics, you evolve it to make it comfortable for your body. And I think yeah. if Randy figures out a way to evolve it to where he can do the move comfortably for this new body, then I don't think he'll have to. Is he going to be doing it off the top rope through ladders out of nowhere? Maybe not. But I think still doing them safely in the ring, if he learns how to do them the right way, I don't think it'll affect him long-term. We've had uh, Shawn Michaels, multiple back surgeries, Edge. Some of these guys have came through with major debilitating surgeries and have modified enough of their game but still kept the, the core of what they do alive. Yeah, you learn how to do it. Like, your body eventually, like, calluses. Like, it, it learns, you know, how to how to take the move. Um, you know, and... Yeah, you know, Flair Flair's a big example. You know, Foley, I think, is another example as he got older and did, you know, and his weight, you know, fluctuation as well. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how Orton comes back because, you know, it's, Orton was never a big risk taker. I know he's been in some, you know, high-risk matches, but, you know, obviously not like, you know, Christian and Edge and the Hardys and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see how Orton comes back and, you know, how like what he does does is he an elder statesman at this point you know like an edge like type character um you know what's his work schedule going to be and it um this is probably the most excited i've wanted to see randy orton in a decade as long as they don't put him back with riddle i'm fine yeah not an arc not an rko bro loved rk bro but again i'm a big fan of goofy wrestling and I think that the, that dichotomy of the two of them worked so well together, and see, and it was a it was an organic transition for Randy Orton to go from disgustingly conniving heel to babyface. It was organic as hell. The crowd loved him. They they latched onto it, and he had and as he put it, the most fun he's had his whole career. In shoot interviews, he talked about it, it was the most fun he's had his whole career. Riddle changes. He didn't like Riddle at first, which everybody who talks about Riddle that's the like. He rubs in the wrong way the first time they meet him. But that's because he's just... Who he is on TV is who he is. And so... Banging porn stars and smoking pot. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that, though. Not the last half, at least. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to meet him. And uh, Randy, like I said, he's, just, he, he's had the most fun he's had in a long time. Like He equated it back to that time when... In, that, that very famous moment where he did that giant split toe, toe touch in the match. Like, he hadn't had fun since then. And now he was having fun again. He was smiling. He's like, he's like I was close to retirement, and now I feel like I can go another five, six years. Now, obviously, the surgery has kind of curved that, and maybe it's dialed it down. But you're right. Like, he, could work a, he could work an edge schedule or a Roman schedule. 
and be fine. And he could come back, if he doesn't come back to RK Bro, he can come back as the Viper. Conniving evil shows up to disrupt some stuff and then leaves for a bit, shows up to disrupt some stuff and leaves for a bit. Like, there's a lot he can do. And pro wrestlers, I have to give them so much credit. Their bodies are so... They're like rubber bands. They bounce back. Like, the fact that Edge is wrestling again, the fact that Daniel Bryan's wrestling again, the fact that Soraya's wrestling again, the fact that Shawn Michaels came back from a broken back and then had that match with Undertaker where he lands in the small of his back on the announce table and it doesn't budge and then completes the match and he was fine. Kurt Angle wins a gold medal with a, with a broken freaking neck and then wrestles Brock Lesnar with a broken freaking neck. Like, the, these guys are resilient and their bodies are trained in a way that they that kind of adapt to it. Um, and as long as he's not putting himself at risk of, of breaking his back permanently and he finds a way to adapt to his working style to bump in a way that's more comfortable, I don't think he would bump it. If he is, like, say the RKO is landing on his hip. We talked about he's turning on his side and on his hip. I don't think he's going to wrestle long enough for that to create a problem where he has to get hit. Because he's not going to wrestle for another 10 or 15 years of doing that every single night, 300 nights a year. He's going to cut that way back on his schedule. So I think he'll be fine. I just I miss, want him to come back. Yeah, for sure. Miss Eagle, what you got? Um, WWE has made the decision to split up JBL and Baron Corbin, a move that has put an, an end to yet another failed attempt a failed push attempt for Baron Corbin. I they feel... Need to, they need to put Baron Corbin in a Buried Alive match. Because JBL, JBL buried him, I think, deeper than any... Like, this was worse than JBL burying the Ascension. <laughs> I feel like Corbin can't... Just can't, like, catch that break. Like, with his character. It's. I don't know if it's a break. I think this is an obvious sign that the dude's just not met for this role in professional wrestling. Like, he might be a nice guy. He might be able to do the moves. He's got a little bit of character, but this is this is, um, this is is Ed Leslie once he lost the barber gimmick. I would say that when it comes to Corbin, I think part of it has to fall on him, and I'll explain. Remember when he was Mr. Money in the Bank? Yes. And he went and did something real stupid. WWE pulled it off of him, made him lose it, and it was way. Because he was being punished. Ever since then, he has become a yes man for the company. And he bends over backwards to do it because he didn't want to lose the job. He just has continued to be that yes man instead of kind of standing up for himself a little bit. And I'm not, no disparaging to Baron Corbin the person. But I understand he wants to keep his job. But I mean, like, Sad Corbin was over. That gimmick was hot. But it also has a shelf life. It is a finite gimmick. You can't do that forever. Happy Corbin didn't work. I think you take him off TV for a couple months, and then you bring him back as the lone wolf again, and just let him get back to the lone wolf, and let him almost, almost mimic his gimmick after Gunther. You know what I mean? Just a hard-hitting, rock-solid, no-nonsense. Get him away from goofy stuff for a while. Get him away from all that. Let him run right through the the mid-card or whatever show they put him on. 
as the lone wolf, get him in either a United States feud or a uh, Intercontinental feud, and then you you can see where he goes from there. Hell, there are just some people that are never meant to leave the mid card. That is just their role in life. There's nothing wrong with that. He's a good hand, as the as the term goes. Uh, I think that he's just yes manned himself into kind of that. Let's try this. Yes, boss. Let's try this. Okay. Like, he's just kind of... There's a bit of a defeatist attitude to himself after almost getting fired that he's never come out of. And that's very obvious to me. If he can get him either get himself out of that or, like, if Triple H sat him down and said, look, we're going to get you back to that NXT lone wolf. We're going to get you, but it's, we're going to get rid of the goofiness. You're going to go full solid by yourself, you know, and just go. I think maybe he can, like, get him out of that funk, maybe. Yeah, and I, the 50 yeah. booking doesn't help. Like, it's, let, you know, let's look at, like, Lanny Poffo and Tito Santana, both, pre, you know, pretty much mid-card talents. I know Tito had, you know, some successful with belts, but, you know, when Tito went into a match, there was a 50-50 chance of Tito winning the match. Like, even when he went against Mr. Perfect for the IC belt, um, there was a chance that, you know, hey, you know what, he might beat Mr. Perfect for that IC belt uh, to get, you know, in that tournament. <clears throat> Lanny Poffo... Um, Brooklyn Brawler, you never thought they were going to win matches. Like, you just never did. And they were, you know, they were guys that were, you know, quote-unquote jobbers, where Tito was that 50-50 booker, but you know what? Tito wasn't a main eventer. You know, he was a mid-card guy. And now all WWE is doing is developing Tito Santana's, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they need to really, I think, develop some more you know, Lanny Poffos. Like, they need to develop some guys. You know, you go in there, they got a name, they got some music, cool. You know they're going to lose. Okay, that's fine. That's their job. But there's so much in this 50-50, it's almost like society with everybody gets a trophy. You know, old man talking here. Everybody gets a trophy <laughs> uh, mentality. that Guys aren't getting over. And Baron Corbin is one of those guys. Like, they're trying to make him Tito when really he needs to be Lanny. And no, and I, I know it's probably not topical to talk about Lanny Poffo. I know he just passed away. I, I know the guy personally. I'm sad that he's gone, but at the same time, <laughs> they, Lanny, Lanny knew his role, and he did it really well. And also, a uh, quick sidebar, I'd like to say that you say old man talking, participation trophies, everybody's got to get them. It was actually your generation's fault because you insisted your kids get, get, uh, get the participation trophies. It wasn't the kids. That was the parents' fault. I just want to say that as a 40-year-old because um, I grew <laughs> up in that. Um, yeah. No, I, I actually, I, I thousand percent agree with you. You're right. We don't have, we have too many, using your example, we have too many Tito's, not enough Lannis, not enough Brooklyn Brawlers. We got to have some people. The problem is, is that nowadays people, like, you were almost making Alpha Academy be the Brooklyn Brawler tag team for a while. When they first came together, they were supposed to be that. And then people fell in love the with killing. them. Yeah, it's just, it's just like, it's, it, it's so, it's, it's, it's kind of hard nowadays because so many people, with social media, they get more vocal, and it's, it's a double-edged sword because social media has helped them figure out, oh, we need to push this person or we need to go this route. At the same time, because there's so many people being vocal, oh, I love Otis. We need to push Otis. It's like, well, he was doing really good in that kind of job role for a while. Like, we should have let him do it a little bit longer. But now he may become part of the uh, maximum male models, which, please, yes, please, yes, please, please, yes, yes, please, give me Otis and Daisy Duke sequence no. shorts. <laughs> I, all, all, I, all I see is Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze yes. dancing in SNL. Yes. And you do that. You have that. You have Dio come out. 
in a Chippendale, you have Monster <laughs> side, you have Otis in the middle, and they come out and do it. Yes. Yes. Do it. A thousand percent. And that, that scene fall in love with Otis. That look she gave him, and she's like, it's a perfect specimen of man. When he walked by, that kind of thing. Give me that a thousand percent. And, and then somebody else from NXT to join Alpha Academy and let them go serious wrestler again. Because Otis is, the fact that he's doing the Caterpillar again, he's already back to being a babyface with the crowd. Yes, give me him in the maximum amount of a thousand percent. And then bring out our truth to sing them out to the ring every week. Fucking yes. Give me all of that. A thousand percent. I'll, I'll buy the shirts, everything. I want it. I want to see him in a mesh crop top with pierced nipples. Fucking give me it all. I want it <laughs> Perfect. The perfect way to bring Mandy Rose back. She can try to. She can try to bring him back, back into her stable. By the way, on the Mandy Rose thing, real quick, I found out the real reason why she was fired. What was uh, that? Wasn't that she was doing the naughty pictures and videos? It was that she was doing the naughty pictures and videos, wearing the tag belt or uh, the title belt, in a lot of them. She had the NXT Women's title in a lot of those pictures. Oh. Yeah. No. My research has not shown that. If you've got any of those pictures, I'll give you my email um, offline so you can send those I, to me. Yeah, I do. It's a no-no. If you, if, if you were to go, like, because it just so happens I just found out randomly I wasn't looking or anything. It just happened to fall on my lap. But mm. Free to join Mandy Rose's fan plan page, and there's a lot of pictures on there with her with the belt. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's it. That's why. That's why. She brought the product into what she was doing. And that's a no-no. But yet Paige could have the belt with stuff on leaked. it. No, she wasn't paying that. That was okay. like something broke into her phone and leaked it. And I know people are like, oh, well, Shawn Michaels did Playgirl. Yeah, secretly Vincent Mano paid the whole project. Yeah. That was not. That was a yeah. work on TV. It was a shoot that he actually approved of. And don't forget, that was the Attitude Era. And also, we had all that run with Playboy for, what, five years? Where all the divas were getting to do Playboy? Yeah. That was a different era. That wasn't the same thing. Now we're in a PG era, we, we're a public, publicly traded company, and the fact that you're putting the product on that site is a problem. And I think that she just didn't want to shut it down, uh, which understandably so. She made over a million dollars in December, so why would she shut it down? She's making more money doing that than she was wrestling. So I can understand her being like, I don't really want to shut that down. They're like, okay, well, you understand that we have to let you go. Now she's suddenly like, she's on this like press tour of acting like she didn't know why she got fired which I find very weird. I don't know why she's doing that. She's burning bridges right now, and that's stupid. Because she could, they could give her a year where she's obviously gotten rid of those pictures with the belt. All she's doing is take that stuff with the belt down, and they would probably let her back. Mm, no, because it still violates her contract because she's making money outside of sanctioned WWE things. So they yeah, would... Like on Twitch and things, you know. That yes, nature. but WWE gets a cut, and those are approved things. Third-party sites. Yeah. Yeah, third-party sites. They've changed the rule. You're allowed to do it again, but you like they do get a cut of it. Because like right now, the party's going on, and Breeze and and Breeze, who's back with the company, he works for Up Up Down Down, which is owned by WWE. That's why he's doing WWE uh, videos. Um, they're on the, the the party right now with Adam Cole and 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 Claudio. But whatever revenue comes from that, the YouTube channel that they have and the Twitch channel, part of it does go back to WWE for using that name. That's why he can use Tyler Breeze again, because he's back with the company. And, like, Dakota Kai uh, has her Twitch back. Uh, Shayna has a YouTube. Asuka now has a YouTube again. And it's very weird. It's called Kana Chan TV. 
and you just watch her through her day, but she doesn't say a fucking word. <laughs> One word. It's very weird. And there's no music. It's just her getting putting her makeup on, getting in the car, going to the arena, getting ready. And that's the video. And she gets she took my gimmick. Hundreds of thousands of views. Hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. It's weird. But WWE gets a part of that. Either she didn't want to give them a part or which or she just wouldn't shut it down. But I mean I think that like after this depending on who buys it, that's gonna be a big part of it too. Who what company buys it. But I still think Comcast is the leading people to buy it because of the Peacock deal, because of USA and et cetera. Disney's a very, very close second, probably a one one B. Um to make a big difference on whether she can come back to it or not. Miss Eagle, what's next on your list? So the next thing on my list is Tony Khan has come out and said that AEW talent and staff said that they were asked by WWE to break their contracts. Um, he wouldn't name names, but yeah. I feel like tampering has been a big thing in professional wrestling the whole time. We've talked about this in the past on this show when they brought up tampering initially, uh, like mid last year, TK brought it up. And I said that these guys are independent contractors. This isn't a player's union. This isn't like the NFL or Major League Baseball. So I said then that tampering's been around for the whole 115 years that this incarnation of professional wrestling has been around. Uh, Because it was always about how are you going to get the popular guys from the other territories in your territory to work for you. You know what I mean? Jim Crockett called all the WWF guys that he had numbers for to try to see what it would take to get them to come to Georgia or come to Florida or come to the Carolinas. You know, Lawler was in the pocket of everybody trying to figure out how much it would cost to get them booked in Memphis or St. Louis. You know what I mean? Or, you know, Mid-America with Louisiana. This happened all the time. So tampering isn't new in the sport, at least from my perspective. Yeah, and it's not just this sport. You know, AFL and NFL, um, you know, baseball, the same thing uh, with the different leagues that were around. You know, it's, it's not new, you know, and somebody's going to know somebody so you can talk to them offline. You know, if, if I get an application and I don't want to do a formal interview, I call a place, I ask the person's name, and I said, hey, you know, is so-and-so there? No, no, they don't work here anymore. Oh, really? Why? What, what happened? Why, why'd, they, why'd they leave? And then, that, because I can't legally ask the question, you know, why, why did they leave, you know, to a, and for a formal interview? So, yeah, you know, that's, that's pro wrestling, and that's sports, and that's, I think any, I think it's any company, any professional company, you want to find out about something. I, again, I get an application. My former assistant food and beverage director, she would go on their Facebook immediately and go, oh, look at this. Like, they, they partied and da 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 So, you know, reaching out and, you know, touching base with somebody, hey, you know, how do you like your job? You know, do you really think it's fair? I, I don't see anything really wrong with that. Um, at all you know what what do you you know what are you making you know how much is your salary blah 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 you know just give me a range again it's market research and i think that's how you hide it i also think that first off tony's just being a whiny little bitch i'm just gonna say fair enough (laughs) you remember do you remember like uh we had the it was clash of the castle then nxt had a pay-per-view and then AEW had all out and tony got pissed that they ran the same weekend as him 
Mm-hmm. We've been doing this weekend. First off, no, you don't. You're a brand new fucking company. They own that weekend. They also did their show on Saturday and then purposely did their NXT show at 4 p.m. so as not to interfere with yours. So shut the fuck up. You actually, they gave you a better audience because they were already hyped from an, an awesome NXT show. That weekend was one of the best weekends of wrestling we've had until CM Punk opened his mouth at that press conference and fucked everything up. But uh, <laughs> one of the best weekends we've ever had in pro wrestling. So NXT had us all hyped when we were done watching it. We didn't watch it long. We did an all-day-long watch-along. We were so hyped. We were like, we cannot wait for All Out. This is going to be great. So all it did was help them. But Tony's going to be like, oh, well, they're trying, they're trying to help people to break their contract. No, they're talking to people. You're blowing it out of proportion because these people are not happy with you, and they're talking about breaking their – they want out of their contracts because they're unhappy. I know he's probably talking about Andrade. He's probably talking about Nero. He's probably talking about Malachi, which is why Malachi took a break. All that stuff. And the thing is, an AEW contract is not a WWE contract. Technically, WWE can make that claim. Hey, you're tampering. Look at our contracts. You can't do that. An AEW contract allows them to work independent dates. It allows them to work with other federations. It allows them to do that kind of stuff. It's an open, independent contract. Shut up. Trying to generate drama to create this war between the two companies, while Triple H is like, I keep an eye on what they're doing, I see what they're, but I don't acknowledge them because I don't want to. <laughs> Basically, he's just like, I, it, it is what it is. We're just going to keep doing us. We're not going to let them affect us. And that hurts Tony. He's like that kid, like, he's the kid at the party. He's that kid at that birthday party. It's not his birthday, but he wants all the attention. Mm-hmm. I said earlier on TikTok that he is trying to shoot his way into a work with WWE. Like, it's almost like he's bringing them up to try to get a rise out of them, to get a response. You know what I mean? He says things. Like, I posted on TikTok earlier from the Dan Lebetard show, No Free Shoutouts, on Friday. Uh, he said that uh, he said that he feels like right now the hatred between both companies stems from them, that they absolute hate each other. You know what I mean? And, like, saying stuff like that out in the open, you would never hear Vince McMahon at any point in WWE or F's or WWF's history come out and go, I hate Ted Turner. You know what I mean? Like, Vince would have never said that. Well, he did make those fun vignettes. I was about to say, I think he actually did. (laughs) I think he actually did a whole promo, but look what happened. But look what happened when he did it. They lost 83 and a half weeks in ratings, and then he's like, oh, wait a minute. How about we don't acknowledge their existence and we just focus on us? Boom. There you go. Like, that's, he did do that. He did actually come out and said he hated Ted Turner, basically, and, like, he had those stupid Hulk and Macho Man promos where they were on Larry King and all that shit, like, like, yeah, so he actually did do that, and it blew up in his fucking face, and he learned his lesson, and Triple H was there for all of that. He lived through that, and he knows it doesn't do me any good. It also doesn't do me any good to burn bridges. Triple H is the one guy I think would do a forbidden door with AEW. I really do. I believe that. But Tony Khan's not going to be the one to shoot it down. Yeah, which is dumb on his part, because Dusty Rhodes never talked about the Mulkies. Um, and that that would be good the Mulkies over. So, you know, and again, aging, you know, aging myself, like that's, that's what it is. Why would a main eventer, the WWF, E, talk about the mid card or a lower card guy, AEW, and send the hate mail right here to yellowshoeguy.com. I don't give a crap. Um, but that's, that's what happens is, you know, 
when WWE acknowledged WCW, WCW, like you said, won for 83 weeks. Um, when uh, WCW acknowledged WWE even more so than ever, what happened? Mick Foley won the belt, and boom, never turned back. Although I guess the one thing that really never turned back was when Xbox jumped over, they uh, they never lost again. Wherever wherever Sean Waltman is, the ratings follow. I love that man. I just want to say that. I love He's... Sean. <laughs> awesome. Al, what's next on your list? Um... We'll knock one or two more out before we start <clears throat> jumping into Foley. Let's see. I have a rumor, Allie. Go for it. When you're done. Okay, I can do it now? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, did anybody notice that the, the Rainmaker showed up in Noah and took out their champion, you know, the same guy that kicked him in the face and he beat the ever-loving shit out of? Yeah, I saw that clip today. I saw that he, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. You and I are going to have the, be the only two that have an input on this. Bobby uh, thinks Japanese wrestling is fan fiction, and uh, Allison pretty much st- sticks to the motherland with it. Um, did I make him mad? Is he gone? Uh, but uh, I think Okada, I wrote an article last summer, right before the G1 happened, about New Japan's over-reliance on Okada. And how, you know how you were just talking about the 50-50 booking with, uh, with Corbin, for instance. Like, Okada is so predictable with the way they book him that it's like uh, a babyface will have the title and then a heel champion will come in and dethrone and take over New Japan Pro Wrestling. And then it always starts the summer before Wrestle Kingdom and it'll be the G1 Climax and then Okada wins it. And then it's the build from July and August through January. Is he going to be able to beat the Hill Champion? Won't he? Will a Hill Champion lose it before then? Because there's always that one or two defenses. Uh, so I think New Japan has had an over-reliance on Okada. But to see him go now into Noah and to see the possibility of him coming stateside to do some work with Strong, uh, I think this will give us a new side of Okada that we haven't really gotten. Because even when we saw him at Forbidden Door, we didn't really see what Okada was made of. Because he had that TK booking ahead of him. So to be able to get to see Okada the same way we're seeing somebody like a Speedball Mike Bailey, or uh, a Kota, for instance. Ibushi is another example of it. I think we're about to see the gloves come off of Okada and finally have a chance to really see who he is in this newest version of him. Well, the main crux of the rumor is that you know, it's already been talked about that he was on his way out the door of New Japan in the first place. Yeah. Is he going to Noah, or is Noah just a stint before he goes somewhere else? Well, New Japan, the way their contracts are rigged right now is the fact that uh, they have similar contracts the way AW is set up in, that when somebody signs the contract, if they have a standing relationship with another promotion, like Moxley and GCW, for instance... They gave Mox an exception to their approved indies for Mox. New Japan does that for their talent. Excuse me. If they've got, you know, relationships with third parties, they'll kind of grandfather those in. Uh, Okada's a young lion. He came through the program, came through the dojo, though. He doesn't have those other relationships. So this is the first time we're really seeing Okada spread his wings into these other promotions because we haven't got it up until now. He's kind of been nothing but New Japan and Anoki's brainchild. No, 
is there like his contract's coming up at New Japan and supposedly he's not re-signing. He's not happy. He's been very vocal about not being happy. And uh, so the rumor was that at first it was that he was just leaving Japan overall. But now that he showed up in Noah, it's like does he do a short stint in Noah or does he sign with Noah? You know what I mean? I think I, I want to see him in the States. I want to see him come and sign in somewhere. I don't want him to sign somewhere like WWE that's going to take him off the market. Have him sign with somebody like Impact so we can see him work in GCW, so we can see him work in Impact, so we can see him work with AEW, so we can see him at Limitless, so we can see him work with the top American talent versus him just coming to the States and then being thrown into a contract that only lets him work with one talent pool. Because it's just going to be New Japan for WWE if that's the case. Uh, yeah. So I, I want him to go somewhere where we're going to actually be able to see him work if he does end up in America. What you got, Miss Siegel? Um, in a similarly related topic, during an appearance on Matt Hardy's podcast, Sean Ross Sapp addressed Carl Anderson and Luke Gellows not being around for Royal Rumble and, and recent episodes of Raw. Apparently, WWE agreed to a clause in the Good Brothers new contract that essentially says, if you're not going to use us, we don't want to be there. More buyer's remorse on Triple H. I don't think so. I think it's actually a smart move on his part. Like, right now, with AJ being injured, they had to pull him from that storyline. So why why have them show up and waste time traveling and all that stuff? Let them stay home. Because yeah. they wouldn't get off if they were there. I disagree. I think the Good Brothers are good and over right now. They were huge in Impact. Impact loved the Good Brothers. And I think hey. WWE... I do disagree with them being on main event, though. I did say sending them to main event was kind of... Uh, that's kind of a downgrade. That's worse than New Day going to NXT, in my opinion. You know, I get why NXT, why they're there, but like Good Brothers being on main event seems like a waste of talent. Main event gets higher ratings than Impact, so the whole thing with Impact is that's yeah. Oh, I'm gonna be out of touch. Smartest kid on the short bus, like get over it. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a glorified it's an indie that's got some money behind it. But isn't uh, that what WWE is and, you know, AEW at the core of it? Yeah. What? Isn't yeah. that all? Wasn't WWE just an indie promotion that got some financial backing at one point? WWE? Yeah. Their house shows were at Madison Square Garden. How could you ever call WWE an indie show? Because other wrestling promotions have worked house shows at, at Madison Square Garden. It's not an exclusive thing to WWE. Yep. Not anymore. Maybe in the 60s and 70s and 80s, maybe. But w I guarantee you WWE also worked high school gyms just as much as they worked MSG, though. The, the reality of it is... Very rare. Main event doesn't get any ratings because they're on the Peacock and there are no ratings for streaming services right now. And that's how Impact gets on cable. But Impact has a hardcore fan base. And the Good Brothers are over with the hardcore fans. And they were over when they came out against Judgment Day. But with AJ being injured, they have to put that Judgment Day story on hold. So, there's, now, putting them on main event, I think, was a bad idea. That Because that it feels like a kiss of death. But, by, by going, hey guys, what, with AJ injured, we don't really have anything for you to prolong this story. Because one of the things that I love about Triple H is that he books people in multiple storylines. 
the Judgment Day is a perfect example of that, where they've had multiple feuds at the same exact time. So, if somebody gets injured, it doesn't derail the entire story, and you're screwed, they can go somewhere else. The only downside is, is that the Good Brothers were not there long enough to have multiple feuds, so when AJ went down, they kind of got screwed, and now they're just off TV for now. When AJ's healed, they will come back with him, they will be a faction, there's a good chance Jay White makes it to WWE, we get a Bullet Club war, the fact that WWE is mentioning Bullet Club at nauseum now. Um, we could get some kind of Bullet Club storyline. And there you go. I don't think the Good Brothers is buyer's remorse. I think it's actually it's the exact opposite because they're like, it would be buyer's remorse if he was like, oh god, what do I do with these guys? I'm paying them, they gotta be here, they're gonna be miserable again, I gotta do something with them. No, it's like, oh, in your contract, if I can't use you, you get to stay home and still be happy. You're getting paid and you get to stay home. Guys, AJ's injured, your storyline's on hold. Go have a cocktail on me, bro. Why, so I've, why not play and plug either Rey Mysterio or Edge to replace AJ? That's a fucking garbage move. I hate when bookers do that. Plug and play is, is a terrible thing to do with storylines. And the fact is the Edge storyline does not actually involve AJ and, and the Good Brothers and, and that feud. It's a different feud. So you're pulling, you're trying to then merge feuds and it gets weird. I don't like the plug-and-play system. I think it's stupid, and, and especially not Mysterio, because, again, that's a different feud, but that's focused around Dominic. The Judgment Day and Ray have run their course. It's simply about Dominic now, and we're building to that moment at WrestleMania where we get father versus son. That's fine. If you pull him out of that and try to make it about the entire Judgment Day, you're ruining the Dominic Ray storyline. You could try to play it off, but because you're merging shit, you're making the, butter, the, the waters muddy, and it's just not good storytelling. From somebody who, not only was I a wrestler, but I also booked my own show, and I've been a writer for several years. I've done both fiction writing and, journal and journalistic writing. That is not how you tell a story. You just don't do it. And I think the one thing I love about Triple H the most is that the fact that he went and hired a director of long-term storytelling, something that Vince would never do because that man ripped up scripts 30 minutes before a show. The fact that they are planning shows out for months and then have contingency plans in case something happens like somebody gets injured because in this sport people get injured all the time so it's hard to book out long plans but they're doing it is every story hitting no nobody bats a thousand in this business nobody bats a thousand in any business the fact is he's doing well enough he's learning he's also kind of learning as he goes because again he went from yes he was booking nxt but he had help now he's the man in charge over this multi-billion dollar company publicly traded still has to answer to stockholders which is a completely different thing than what nxt was doing and I, I i think that you just pull the good brothers off tv they'll get a pop when they come back because the hardcore fans and crowd will pop some of the casual fans who know them will pop it may not be an edge pop it may not be a cody wins the rumble pop but they'll get a pop but i mean let's talk about this i went to the royal rumble i was there in san antonio Nia Jax got a fucking pop. She also got laughed out of the building after she got dumped over the roof. Chelsea Green got a fucking pop. Pat McAfee got the loudest pop of the night coming out. <laughs> like, the casual fans are learning who these people are. So, like, Roxanne Perez got a massive pop. That place exploded when she came out. Now, partially because she is from Texas, so the Texas people knew her from the Indies. But also, her NXT time has really shined. And I honestly think Ro Roxanne Perez belongs on the main roster, and then you make her go after her main title. But, like, legitimately, the, the, the casual fan is starting to learn more about the business with these Ryan Satin out-of-character out of interviews. 
Peacock putting all these shoot interviews and backstage stuff up. Uh, YouTube getting more popular with that kind of stuff. They're learning the ropes as and becoming closer to the hardcore fan than just the casual fan now because it is so easily accessible. And the fact that their WWE is now openly talking about New Japan, talking about the fact that Carl Anderson was the uh, never open weight champion, talking about the Bullet Club. People are going to go look that up. They're going to be curious. They're going to have their phone in their hand. They're going to Google that shit. The Good Brothers are fine. I don't think there's buyer remorse there at all. I have been very long-winded, and I apologize. <laughs> uh, all right, we are going to uh, to hop into the meat and taters of this conversation. Um, we did last week. We had RN on. We talked about Triple H, the game. We broke down his career. This week, we are going to talk about the hardcore legend, a world champion, a podcast host, a stand-up comedian. He played Santa Claus. This man, in my humble opinion, has had more impact on the sport of professional wrestling than anyone. I say this a lot. It's my show, and I get to direct the, com- or the conversation however I see fit. I always say, Sean was the best entertainer. Brett was the best in-ring performer. Bruno had the best tenure and career. But Mick Foley, in my opinion, Foley changed more in wrestling than anyone before him and anyone since. So my first question for you, Superbeard, what are your initial thoughts when I say the name Mick Foley? Uh, hardcore legend, but even a bigger-hearted, kind human being of a legend. Like, legend of a human being. Just, I, the living embodiment of Santa Claus. Like, you mentioned Santa Claus. He is the living embodiment of what I call Santa Claus. Just fun, jovial, the man lives for it, but that, he, he's everything. He's the nicest human being in the world and gave everything to this sport um and i mean everything um and and we we as fans are better off for it i 100 percent say that the world doesn't deserve mick foley he's such a great guy uh bobby kind of the same question to you man uh what are your initial thoughts when you think of mick foley as the person mick foley as the person i love like absolutely amazing uh, theme park enthusiast uh, Noel is absolutely phenomenal. I'm glad Mick put her on the planet. Um, One Mick hour, Foley, fourteen minutes. Yeah, Mick Foley, the professional wrestler. I disagree. I think he opened way too many doors and too many opportunities and too many stupid things in the ring and hurting themselves on purpose. Um, you know, he was ECW before ECW, and. I just think I fully fully put his fully put his body on the line too much, and I think you see it on the indies a lot. I think you see it um, a lot of times. Guys just do too much in the ring that isn't safe, and that's why Mick Foley retired as young as he retired because of that. Um, was it a good Was it good to watch? Yeah, I I loved watching it. Um, you know, it took a documentary and watching Noel and Dewey cry about him getting hit in the head, which then Rock went over the line and fully said that, um, for him to start changing his style from going to that, you know, from that brutal mankind type character to the kinder, gentler, socko mankind. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, personal-wise, love Foley. Like, shared the locker rooms with him, been around town with him, been around town with his daughter, um, not like that. Um, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> love, love, 
love love them love him as a human being um but i just feel like he he created a style of pro wrestling that has gotten people hurt um and um and may, maybe he didn't create it but he was the biggest um the biggest visual for people to watch it and i think i think that part of foley's career um you know as fun as it was to watch uh I, I, I cringe I cringe watching some of the stuff now. And I don't cringe much. Allison, uh you say he's one of your favorites of all time. Uh what about Foley that you've watched uh kind of made him your favorite? Um, a lot of it has to do with like Mick Foley the person, not necessarily the wrestler, because he's such an incredible human being. Um you know, we, you and I have met him, you know, I have, you know, I got two, you know, those, I bought two cameos from him, uh, for Will when he was sick and like the extra mile that he went to on these cameos to like make them special, like was incredible. And like when we met him in July, he remembered exactly who I was, who Will was, making the cameos, like the whole thing. Like to me, that's incredible because he's like one of the top people, like top purchase people on Cameo. And like he remembered it. And the two cameos were almost a year apart from each other. And at the beginning of the second cameo, he remembered the first cameo. Um, as a wrestler, like I like. I like the little bit more of the hardcore stuff. Um, to me, it's cool. I don't know. I like fucking dudes going off the top of the cages of the table. I mean, eh. it's a stylistic thing. We don't yuck any yum. Yeah, I think it's cool and badass. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, we don't kick shame. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. I think it's super cool and. And, you know, that, like, seeing the juxtaposition of, like, him being, like, this super, super nice guy and then, like, this super hardcore, like, blood and gore wrestler. I don't know. Like, I just like it. My, I love the fact that in between the two cameos, and this is a personal thing, and I got a lot of really cool, inter- as this is one of those weird, like, double-edged swords coming out of a cancer diagnosis and going through the chemo and everything, because I got a lot of really cool interactions while that happened, and the the Jimmy Hart thing where Bobby called me and I was buck ass naked, uh, finishing up a round of chemo and getting a sponge bath, and Jimmy Hart FaceTimes me at two o'clock in the afternoon because of Bobby, uh, the Mick Foley things. The, but one of the things that stand out is in those cameos, you get to message the person that you're making the cameo with to kind of talk about what you want. Mick left that message open to her so that way he could check in to see how I was doing. This man didn't know me from Paul or Peter, but he made it a point to text her to be like, you know, for at least a little bit after he sent the chemo to continue to check in to make sure I was doing well. You know, so that right there says the, what's up, Mr. B-Roll? Thank you for the follow. See, Bobby, I told you the things come up on the screen. You said it doesn't do it. See? But, But you guys get what I'm saying. Foley's a fucking amazing guy. There's no question about that. But let's kind of start. It's kind of hard when you talk about the guy that, like I said, and I'm a I'm a mark for him, big mark. Um, and when you break down a career of somebody who revolutionized it so much, 
Uh, I've kind of got it broken down into three big chunks. Um, so we're going to start in the early 90s. Bobby, you talked about him revolutionizing a style of wrestling that was very synonymous with him, that evolved into the ECWs and the, the deathmatch stuff. But when he first started, we saw him in WCW. We saw him uh, feuding with people like Sting, Abdullah the Butcher, Vader. Like, what were your first opinions? Uh, because you're going to be the one that was, you were already watching wrestling regularly by this point. Uh, yeah. Early 90s. Superbeards, you and I are kind of close in the same age. Bobby's uh, old enough to remember. What was it like seeing such a brash character come on the screen alongside Sting at this point? Because Cactus Jack at that point in the early 90s was very different than anything we were seeing in WCW. Yeah, like I remember going up to the TV and fixing the uh, coat hanger to make sure I could get it in like clear. And, you know, even though it was in black and white, Cactus, J Cactus Jack Manson, <laughs> Cactus, uh, Cactus Jack Manson, like it was like, crazy like because like he took that name cactus jack manson because the manson interviews were going on like this was the first time like people were like seeing you know charles manson since like you know the horrific stuff that you know his family did in the 70s um and i as a young you know young kid i was just being introduced to him like i i didn't know who charles manson was and i was like who is this guy and then all of a sudden you see a guy that looks just like him wrestling and you know those devastating elbows that he did like off the apron, you know, down on the floor. Like, again, it was dangerous. It looked dangerous. And I will say this about him. He didn't hurt. He never hurt his opponents. He hurt himself. Um, and, you know, not being smart or, you know, halfway smart back then, you know, it was a shoot. And it was like, dang, like this guy is like crazy. But it, to me, I was like, you know, this guy, if Cactus Jack is this hurt, after hitting that elbow on his opponent, then what does his opponent must feel? Because if he's putting himself in this much pain, then the opponent must be like absolutely insufferable. Like, um, and I love the way you say break it down because that's basically what he did is he broke down his own body by doing this stuff to get people over. I think he was a big enough talent that he could have worked smarter, um, or not, maybe not smarter, safer. He could have worked safer for himself. And would it have looked as devastating because i do i do think that his facials were legitimate like when he was in pain you could see it um so i don't know how much there was um character development in that or it was just him actually dude that hurt and he can't hide it super beard when you watch these old clips from wcw in the early 90s uh do you think it was best for Cactus to go to WCW first? Uh, do you think Cactus Jack or the Cactus Jack Manson style character would have gotten over in WWF in 1991 the same way he did in WCW? I don't think in the same way. I think it would have got over, but you got to remember back then we had the, you know, Steve Kern as Dundee, you know, like that kind of crocodile Dundee character. We had Tony the Clown. We had, you know, the Repo Man. We had I IRS. Everybody had a job, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody had a job. Everybody had an over-the-top gimmick. They were larger-than-life characters. So his character would have morphed in a way, and I don't think they'd have let him work his style. He would have been miserable. And it could have ended his career early, just because he would have given... I think he might. it might have pushed him to give up. So... While the character would have gotten over, it wouldn't have been the character we know. 
it would have been a Vince McMahon version of the character, and it would have gotten over because he would have given it his all at first. Like he would have gone into the job and given it his all. Like and so the the it would have gotten over, but I mean remember I mean we had remember nails. <laughs> like that like it had been something like that and it would have been you know probably better for Vincent Mann he wouldn't have been attacked in his office uh, had it been Foley and not that nails dude but yeah I just don't think I think it worked out best going to WCW because they were a little bit still more real at the time well it's not just real they were just they were kind of an indie even though they had TV they were an indie still they still had that kind of indie feel so they were a little bit more open to trying things like, they were a territory still. Like, they were still kind of feeling like a territory. They were NWA. They were, you know, they weren't the... WWF at the time was becoming that uh, cereal box product. The 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 Hulk, Hulkamania, like, it was all that. Like, it was becoming the... It was more pageantry than product. That was when that was really going up. Like it was starting to ramp up, and then it, and then a sweet uh, steep dive down. WCW was still we're just about the wrestling. We're about the product. We're about what what the people in the crowd sees, and hopefully it, it translates to TV. But they were still learning TV. So yeah, I think it was better for them. I think I think if he would have come in WWE at that point, WWF at that time, um, I think he would have been a failed Undertaker gimmick. Because they they would have they would have tried to make him you know this killer Undertaker immortal, you know love Fo- again love Foley to death. Um, I I would love I would actually love to see him try to do the Undertaker gimmick um, back then, um, because you know back then we wouldn't have known what the Undertaker gimmick is. But uh, <laughs> I I would I would have liked to see what he did with it. Uh, the next step in his career, though, that WCW run kind of started the that first step of Cactus Jack. Uh, between that 94, 95, 96 run, he had three big stops in his career. He worked in ECW, he worked in Smoky Mountain Wrestling with James E., and he worked in IWA in Japan. And I feel like all three of these places had very different effects on his career, uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling being the shortest stint working with uh, Cornette, uh, almost a negligible stint. He spent less than a year in the East Tennessee and Appalachia. But the ECW days and then running into Japan, uh, I know this isn't your cup of tea, Allison. You've already preached about how much you love hardcore wrestling. Uh, Superbeard, what do you think about death matches and stuff rolling into... Because you can't talk about Foley without bringing up the you know the Kawasaki King of the Deathmatch tournament. You guys hear the cat again, don't you? I can see Bobby's face. That fucking cat, man. Uh, <laughs> so what what are your initial impressions on Deathmatch wrestling and some of the stuff they were doing at that point in uh, Japan in the nineties? I'm not a huge fan of Deathmatch wrestling, but it's a it's an experience thing. Um, I used to because I wrestled six days a week during my four years as a wrestler, Tuesday through Sunday eight shows a week because Sunday we'd have or Saturday and Sunday we'd hit like an afternoon show and then drive to go hit a night show. So Every day and twice on Sunday, man. Yeah, I was wrestling. But Tuesday nights was in this bar called Bourbon Street in Pasco. Newport Ritchie. And we get a packed crowd every Tuesday. But it wasn't for the wrestling. It was 25 cent draft night. 
to keep everybody's attention, it was called American Combat Wrestling. It was all, it was kind of a ripoff of ECW. I worked a lot of hardcore matches. Most of my injuries that led to my retirement from wrestling came from doing that kind of stuff. Like I got a power bomb through a ladder, but the guy was inexperienced and he was hyped up and he pulled me in too tight. And so only my head hit the ladder. Um, that was a concussion, fun times there. Uh, and so I, I've never been a huge, like it makes me cringe watching Deathmatch wrestling, but at the same time I can, I can appreciate and respect the people that do. Like I love Nick Gage. I love Nick Gage. I have a hard time watching him watching him work, but I think he's great. It's the pizza cutter for me. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby, what do you think about death matches? Because I know they're they're definitely not your thing. Uh, but what about them is the the biggest turnoff for you? Everything. It's not it's not pro wrestling. It's just going out there and you know it's uh, what's that thing on Jackass? Uh, to be dumb, you got to be tough. The song or whatever that they play. Um, that's that's what deathmatch is like. You know, can I, can I prove that I'm tough when I get hit in the head with a light tube? Okay, <laughs> like why why is that entertaining? Like you know, people, and this is good. I, this might be a cornetism. You know, people might stop and look at two dogs uh, having sex on the side of the road. Then you go past it and you might say something to somebody, and you know, do you need to see it again? No. Unless it's like a Chihuahua and like a Great Dane. But every time you see two dogs fucking on the side of the road, you're going to go, look, those two dogs are fucking on the side of that road. If you're a pro wrestling fan and you see a guy smash somebody over the face with a light tube, you're going to go, fuck, that was cool. I'm not I'm not going to pay money for it. But it, go. there's the, there's an appeal to it. Like Superbeard said, it might not be my cup of tea all the time. Uh, yeah, we don't yuck any yums, but Matt Ritter said it best way back when. Uh, he said pro wrestling is like porn, you know, like there's parody porn and there's, you know, MILF porn and there's lingerie porn and there's gangbang porn. Deathmatch is like gangbang porn. I, you know, like you might see one and go, well, that was kind of cool, but that doesn't mean that's what you're going to want to watch every single time you watch it. But I think the deathmatch fans do want to watch it every single time. Like me, I'm not a deathmatch fan. I don't ever want to watch it. Like I, 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 if I see a video on YouTube with deathmatch wrestling, like wrestling, I usually fast forward through it, like I or go, you know, skip it. Like it, 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 there's no appeal to me on deathmatch wrestling. It's just again, it's guys just going out there. They're not even like stuntmen. Like I know Ric Flair is famously, you know, compared Mick Foley to. It's just going out there and bleeding and getting hurt because there's nothing else you can do. You know, you can't talk them into the seat. You can't perform in the ring to get them in the seat to buy that ticket but you can take a light to your forehead or to you know a brick to your balls and that's gonna bring them to the seat i i'd rather i'd rather not be in the seat is that kind of what's that well sorry no finish your thought and then i'll ask my question sorry i thought you were done and then i'd say most of the time um the people that enter that are in those seats watching them are their family and friends is this kind of why you're like you don't like AEW as much because they are a little bit more towards the more bloody, you know, matches? And so I know you don't like super care for AEW, but like I'm just curious, like if this was one of those reasons because like they do, you know, a little bit more of the gimmicky, like 
not necessarily hardcore death matches, but like Mox does a little bit, you know. It's yeah, I blood and hardcore. I don't mind. Like okay. I, I, like I grew up with Ric Flair. Right, right. No, I know. I was just curious. I work shows with Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton bleeds every single match. Like I don't <laughs> mind violence. I don't mind any of that stuff. The things that I do mind is good storytelling. And you know, the guy that the guy that trained me in the ring, according to Ricky Morton, is the shits. Like he sucks. He can't tell a story. But he was over in ECW. He was over in WCW. But when you put him in the ring, it's a spot fest. And AEW to me is a spot fest. And I don't think AEW is even comparable to that kind of wrestling. Like, I, I don't think death matches in AEW are even close. I, AEW is a lot more entertaining than a death match. And I like it. I, I tolerate AEW for the goods and watch them, you know, even through the bads when I watch the product. Like, I just hope, I want them to continue to learn. Like, I, the, the VPs of AEW are the wrong VPs. Those those three guys should not be in charge because can they perform in the ring? Yep. Do they care about the rest of the uh, the rest of the locker room? I don't think so. Do they care about um, the story of what a match really is? No. I don't think they tell the story in the ring. I don't think they can talk in the microphone. And that's, that's my issue with Omega and the Buckies is – they just don't, they, they can't, they're not pro wrestlers that I, they're, 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 they're more sports entertainers than what WWE puts out there or what Chris Jericho is pretending to put out there with his faction. Off the soapbox. <laughs> Going back to Mick Foley. <laughs> Bring it around. <laughs> well, no, there's, a, there's actually a great thing to do here. Like, from my time in the indies and, and, and working with guys, I found that most people who do deathmatch wrestling are people who either couldn't afford or just refused to go to an actual wrestling school. They got in their backyard and saw some stuff, and Mick Foley's partially to blame for that. But I would say that the differences to what most deathmatches are, and I will say that like GCW has a lot of good storytelling in their stuff. It's still hard to watch, but they go way over the top, like way. It's it's it's. I love Jackass. Like you mentioned them earlier. I love the Jackass movies. I think they're great, but even there sometimes I'm like, ooh, okay, too much. But, like, GCW is just that too much portion a lot of times. But they have a lot of storytelling. But most death matches, hardcore indies, are just guys who have no training and want to get out there. It's like, well, I don't have to do a, an arm an arm drag or a hip toss because I'm just going to throw a dude through a bunch of light tubes or a bunch of tacks. Mick Foley, on the other hand, and Terry Funk, and a couple of other guys in that in that class, they did hardcore deathmatch wrestling, but with true ring psychology and true storytelling. It got corrupted and mutated into what it is now by the copycats and the imitators. But what they did had story, it had presence, it had it had it had psychology to it, and that's why even McFoley to this day and even Terry Funk to this day don't really like deathmatch wrestling because it lost all of what was special about it because it was still telling a story but in this grandiose absurd like also not all the time kind of it was special and and it just got it just got bastardized into what it is today so i think that mick foley you're right he revolutionized it and 
it's a double-edged sword with him because it was for the better and for the worse. Because it was for the better because it brought more eyes to, to a, a subsection of wrestling. It was for the worse because every copycat out there missed the truth behind it and just saw the spectacle of it and took that portion. Right. Like, people didn't realize Terry Funk wasn't doing this because he was this new, young, up-and-coming guy. This is a guy that's in his 60s, and he's doing it to stay relevant. So he took his territory days. He took his pro wrestling psychology from his father, from his brother, you know, from everything he, you know, a 40-year career at that point in time, and said, how do I stay relevant? And if it takes, you know, exploding barbed wire and stuff like that, I'm going to be able to do the psychology. And Mick Foley, God bless him and lucky for him, he was this 20-something-year-old guy that got to sit under a learning tree with Terry Funk. And, you know, the territories, you know, he was in the CWA. He was in WCCW. He's a territory wrestler, so that's how you make your money. And Foley was a smart guy, is a smart guy. Um, and that's where Foley and Funk, I think, are so different than a lot of these other guys, you know. And, you know, Balls Mahoney being, you know, one of those guys, like, he learned a little bit more, like, as he got a little, you know, a little older. But, you know, there's these other guys that are just out there. They they do it with no story. They do it with no soul. Like, the matches don't tell you anything. It's just shock for shock value. And, again, dude, I, you know, I, I've, I'm old enough. I used to watch those, uh, I'll say VHS, the Faces of Fear. Mm-hmm. Where, Faces you know, of Death or whatever they were. Yeah, yeah. like, where people, yeah. Yeah, people like legitimately died or blah blah blah. Like their bungee cord was too long and all that kind of stuff. Actual, yeah, yeah. big time yeah. cups. <laughs> like I, you know, I'd watch that stuff, but now, like, if you if you want to associate that with what I love, professional wrestling, then no. Terry Funk and um, you know Mick Foley were different and are different when it comes to that stuff. What Paulie did with ECW a lot of times was different you know it still had the blood blood and guts but paulie did it really well um new jack is one of those guys crazy crazy guy um (laughs) many conversations with him but the dude other than you know maybe a handful of times actually knew what he was doing in the ring and told a good story on the microphone and in the ring um but you know he, he did every now and then go off the deep end, uh, like trying to kill that 19-year-old kid or <laughs> um, the other guy that he threw off the scaffold. But, you know, there's psychology out there. And if you do the psychology correctly, then, yeah, you can use a light tube. Uh, I had, picking up off of that, I had Orrin Vite on the show not too long ago. He's a former IWA Mid-South guy. I worked with Ian Rott, and he came out of the last of the ECW days before WWF scooped up everybody. He did, when the deathmatch scene started to break through, he did XPW with Rob Black and some of those guys. Um, He talked about it. He said the deathmatch guys that were trained in traditional wrestling all walk and talk and uh as a mark i love when i get to use industry terms like i know what they mean but when he said that they walk and talk they still some of those older guys still like they still call their spots in the rink 
He's like, we don't go out there. He goes, will I ask you ahead of time? Are you cool taking this bump on an upside down chair with the legs up? I'm going to ask you ahead of time if you're cool taking these bumps. But they're still going to walk and talk and call their spots on the fly. And I think that's kind of what you guys are both saying here is Oren is the 2023 version of blending the story and the ring psychology with the deathmatch style of wrestling. He's trying to do in 2023 what you guys say Funk and Foley and you know some of those crazy guys uh, across the Pacific were doing in the, uh, the 90s. Uh, one more thing before we branch into the WWF side of it, and both of you brought him up, is Terry Funk. Uh, Foley and him have had exchanges in their career throughout time. Uh, people use the term all the time, wrestling soulmates. Do you think Terry Funk is more of a wrestling soulmate for Mick Foley than, say, The Undertaker or, say, Edge or Triple H? Uh, do you think Terry Funk is Mankind or Mick Foley's wrestling soulmate? Super Billy, I'm going to let you tee off, then Bobby, you come in right behind him. I think about the percent he is. Um, has he had great feuds since then? Of course. Fantastic ones. But hands down, it's Terry Funk. That's, that's the one. And I think you know, one of the biggest proof of that on, on a big international stage was the Hell in a Cell 98. And you see Terry Funk going out there and trying to, like, get out there. And even helping by taking a couple shots from The Undertaker to help, spend, you know, give him some more time. Like, that alone told you right there, yep, those two are, are forever connected. That is it. Um, it's hard not to talk about Foley without bringing up, without bringing up Terry and vice versa. And I think that's just proof enough. Yeah, to, like with me, you know, if Mick Foley is Brodus Clay, Terry Funk is a Funkadactyl. Like he's out there like singing and dancing and, you know, doing all his praises. Like he gets him over. Um, you know, Terry Funk, generation difference, like three generations probably different than Foley. Um, I think he started like in the 60s, maybe even late 50s, um, was champion in the NWA in the 70s. Um, re retired. I think he retired in '82. I think might have been Funk's first retirement. His I'll first retirement up. was '82. Yeah. Dang, how did I know that? Because um, you're so, fucking ridiculous. Yeah, but for him to keep going, um, and you know this young protege Mick Foley comes in and he takes him under. You know, like I said, what a learning tree, man. Like, I treasure the times I spent in the car with Ricky Morton or in the locker room with. Uh, with him or Barbarian, like all these other guys, like, dude, to be able to like travel, like not just the country, not up and down the roads, but across the world with Terry Funk and be in the ring in that learning tree, like it's phenomenal. Um, you know, Nick Foley could only get better with with that kind of knowledge. So, yeah, um, yeah, there to me, there's no other association. Uh, you know, I I associate Terry Funk closer with Nick Foley than I do Sacco. All right, Al, you're doodling and you're coloring. you got to pay attention. I'm not to this doodling. <laughs> I'm taking notes. You're taking notes? See well, this? Notes. You're taking notes. Uh, the, uh, what would you say, Superbeard? Sorry? No, I was saying her, her notepad was off camera. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. oh. She was showing me. I was showing you. <laughs> yeah, taking was, notes. Um, She's written down, Bob. Now talked about a woman in professional wrestling associated with Mick Foley in three hours. Actually, I wrote down a uh, I, a segment idea for your show, but that's fine. Okay. 
I looked it up. Terry Funk debuted in 1965. Was um, it? Obviously, yeah, 1965. Also, very interesting, which I didn't realize because I knew he was married to uh, Victoria Ann Weaver, who unfortunately passed away March uh, on my brother's birthday in 2019. Um, they had been married from 1965 to 1975, and then got remarried in 1991. And I didn't know that. I didn't know they had been married prior. Yeah, yeah. He went. He went through like a big party thing. Yeah. yeah. And she away what three years ago? Twenty nine March twenty ninth, twenty nineteen. Yeah. Uh, Miss Siegel, bringing you into the conversation because this is going to be a foley that you know, uh, the Mason the Mutilator foley. I've got a picture hanging up on the wall. You guys can't see it. Uh, 1996, he debuted in Connecticut. They were really unsure of what the fuck to do with this guy because he wasn't a Vince staple. He wasn't built like WWF superstars. He didn't work like WWF superstars. Nothing about Mick Foley, the person, was the atypical Mick Foley. Uh, When you think of this version of mankind, the brown leather suit, the mask, the, the hand glove... What do you think when you think about that version, now that we're going to say Mankind for the first time? Are you talking to me specifically? Yes, oh. I'm, I'm starting you this time. <laughs> I mean, I to me, that's like the, like you said, it's the Mick Foley that I know. So, like, that Mankind is, to me, like, you know, he's a little bit unsettled. Uh, you know, I immediately go to his feud with The Undertaker and, you know, his dive off of the top of the uh, the cage and the tooth through his nose and, you know, all that fun stuff. Uh, before we get there, uh, Superbeard Bobby, uh, I'm going to ask you guys this. In 96, he had a historic feud with The Undertaker that involved the SummerSlam, uh, the Boiler Room Brawl. This was a historic point because at the end of this match, Paul Bear turned on The Undertaker. And this was the first time Paul Bear turned on The Undertaker, and he sided with Foley. Uh, what did you guys think about that? Uh, Superbeard, you can go first. Uh, you're the guest. What did you think the symbolism was there of, uh, you know, William Mooney, the, uh, the Paul Bear, Undertaker's manager for so long, even back when he was Texas Red? For them to have him turn on Taker at this point and side with Mankind so early in his WWE run. Uh, I think it was kind of a two-fold thing. And first off, I'd like to say that the promo that Mankind did in that boiler room before that match is stuff of legend. Love that promo. Uh, that being said, I think what it was, it was because for those who don't know, the only reason that Mick Foley was there was to fail. Because Jerry Ross, uh, or Jim Ross, was very much set on bringing in Mick Foley, and Vince McMahon brought him in solely to prove Jim Ross wrong. He's like, I want him to fail. I'm going to make sure he fails. I'm going to put him in this ridiculous gimmick. I'm going to make sure that Jim Ross is wrong and knows his place. And he wasn't failing. It was working. So then... Vince McMahon changes this. It's like, okay, well, now i got to really work on getting this guy over because he's getting over, but we need to do something. And he's not – the promos are great, but it's not, you know, perfect. Also, Undertaker's getting a little stagnant. You need to get him more over as a face. So it worked twofold. It worked to give a mouthpiece to mankind uh, and – well, actually, it worked threefold. 
It gave a, man, a mouthpiece to mankind. It made Undertaker the martyr, and it brought so much feel to that to that storyline. So it, it worked in threefold, and it was the moment that this man finally accepted Mick Foley as a potential guy in the business. Bobby Mack, what did you think about the uh, the old Paul Bearer turn? You know, I thought it was it was definitely interesting for the character because Paul Bearer, you know, could you ever really see Paul Bearer with anybody else? Like, this is a... This isn't Bobby Heenan. It's not Mr. Fuji or, you know, Fred Blassie, um, the managers of, you know, a little bit out of that time, uh, Jimmy Hart. Like, they all were part of, you know, what Jimmy Hart managed the Hart Foundation. Like, it was, you know, Bobby Heenan managed guys that fit with him. And Paul Bearer, such a unique character. This isn't Percy Pringle. Percy Pringle could go with anybody. Paul Bearer doesn't go with anybody. He's got to go with somebody that's kind of supernatural, different, uh, evil. And it was a great testament to what, um, you know, William Mooney could do um, and what Paul Bearer, the character as well, could do. Um, and it was shocking. It was just actually, like, you know, shocking. You know, originally, when Undertaker, you know, debuted, yes, he was with Brother Love, but it didn't fit. But we didn't know it didn't fit until Brother Love introduced Paul Bearer. And then it was like, wow, like light bulb on. This is the manager of The Undertaker. And when he turned on him and went with Foley, it's like, how dark must this person be that you have Paul Bearer turn on th this guy? And it it was a great story. Um, it really was. And it, I would dare say it's almost like one of the first, like, cinematic type matches um you know that became so famous during the pandemic um and it, and it played really really well uh allison between 1996 1997 and 1998 we saw three different variations of mick foley uh we saw the the mankind character uh we saw him bring back cactus jack um but we also saw the at first WWF incarnation of someone that Foley developed when he was in grade school and high school, and that was the Dude Love character. I want you to describe to the people listening in the chat and the people listening at home on Spotify, I want you to describe who you think Dude Love is. What do, who is Dude Love, the, the character? How do you describe him? I mean, to me, Dude Love is like, the if you were to say that like all three character all three faces of Foley were like different like different personalities in his head i would say that dude love was like the outgoing like friendly personality like he's the one you know that you go have a beer with would you say that Dude Love would be the one most likely to dress up as Santa out of the three faces of Foley? Yes. <laughs> uh, super Beard. Looking at the three faces of Foley, uh, once again, Cactus Jack, Mankind, Dude Love. Um, over this three-year period, uh, once again, I'm asking you a second question about the hindrance to somebody's career. How do you think this affected Foley throughout this three-year time period? where he was able to manage three gimmicks with three different storylines, with three different characters and three different feuds. Uh, how do you think he handled it all? 
I think it might have been one of his most fun periods in all of his career. Because that is just creative abundance. You just get to have so much fun. And as I have stated time and time again, goofy, goofy wrestling for life. Give me it all. Dude Love was great. But you know the best version of Dude Love was Heal Dude Love. <clears throat> Heal Dude Love was fantastic. Loved Heal Dude Love. But yeah, getting to, to, to kind of like play around, it gave you a chance to make, keep things fresh in your own mind. Because you went out and did Mankind one night, and then another night you're doing Dude Love, and then you're doing Cactus Jack. You're getting to keep things fresh for yourself, so it kind of revitalizes you, and it doesn't feel like the same thing over and over and over again. So it was probably like a, like, and I know he's talked very fondly of that time. So I would imagine it's probably a period that he looks back on incredibly fondly and incredibly fulfilling. Uh, just getting it also showed that he was given a lot of of, of a lot of, of leeway from Vince, the trust there at that point um, uh, was huge that he was allowed to do that. And uh, I think that all culminates with the, the that Royal Rumble appearance where he's in the Royal Rumble three times, which is a record, which he technically could have done four because there's technically four personalities because there's Mick Foley and then there's the rest so he could have done four but I, I think that it just showed like like to me thinking about it because I had you know I had my main heel character when I was wrestling but I had a fun character on this that I did on the side very very rarely because you know when I got booked it was booked off a previous show so they were booking it off the, the gimmick that I had but every now and then when I was doing my own promotion I got to play around and and do this very fun, goofy character that I have with a mask and everything. And, and I, it was just, it was so fulfilling to just go out and do something different. And I can only imagine, again, based on everything he said of how fulfilling that must have been. Uh, Mr. Shoe Guy, as a wrestling purist, when you were coming up as a fan, uh, by the late 90s, like when you saw Foley come out three different times in that 98 Rumble, like what was your, your first impression as a, like I said, as a wrestling purist, you grew up watching the in, uh, the NWA, WCW. You saw WWF thrive and come into its prime. But then in 98, we saw something that kind of went against everything kayfabe stood for. was because we saw the same dude come out three different times. Like, what did you think about that? Um, my yellow shoes back then, I was like, this is like really kind of odd. Like, um, my yellow shoes now, standing in them. Um, knowing, you know, more about stuff and backstage and everything. Like, I think it's, like, really cool. It's, like, um, like Superbeard mentioned, you know, coming out in a mask. Like, that's that's classic for, you know, wrestlers, um, you know, indie or, you know, the guys that, you know, are on cable TV. Coming out in a mask, but, like, portraying another character is something totally different than what Foley did. Because Foley wasn't wearing a mask, like, other than Mankind's, you know, mask, but we all could see his face or know who he was. He wasn't pretending... To be somebody else like you know like the indie scenes you know the, the most classic gimmick i think definitely in uh tennessee wrestling is having a russian gimmick come out so i knew a guy that played <laughs> who was a nashville singer like the honky-tonk man but then he played a russian gimmick the next match um you know with the red mask and all that other kind of stuff you this wasn't fully like he wasn't hiding who he was to be the other gimmick he portrayed the other gimmick like an actor you know like you know you know like uh i don't know like charles not, 
especially Charles Bronson of all people. Um, like, you know, like, like all, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, portraying different things, Tom Hanks, he was portraying these three different characters. Like it, this would be like Tom Hanks being in Forrest Gump, the toy and, um, with the one where he's lost on the island in the same movie. Castaway? Yes. Thank you, Allison. Like, <laughs> this, this, like, he, like, he didn't put a mask on. It just was, and you, you felt like he was different every time he came out. It wasn't just a costume change, but it was the way he performed, like, whether it was Bang Bang or, you know, whatever, you know, the, all the stuff he did, it just, Foley really did feel these characters. Like, I think if, you know, he could have come out at, like, number 10 as Santa Claus, and we wouldn't have, like, really known it was even Foley because he would have lived it. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Super V. The thing, too, about those characters, like you said, every it wasn't just the mannerisms to the ring that were different. The movesets were different. The way he carried himself in the ring was different. The ring psychology was different. Like, he really went to town and portrayed three different characters. And even back then, think, trying to think kayfabe and keep... Which, by, at that time, the Attitude Era was taking kayfabe and throwing it out with the... You know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They didn't give a shit anymore. It was all real at that point. We, and we showed you what we were doing and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Vince Russo. Ugh, bastard. Um... <laughs> um what you could have, like, for a kayfabe pers- perspective, and I think the commentators kind of talked about this during the Rumble, they were, like, his split personalities. They were his, you know, his DID form. Like, it was his multiple personalities coming out. And that's why everything was so different. And I think that, so it even, it still kind of kept with kayfabe. Even though it's the same guy, you're just like, oh, he's nuts. And somehow he was able to get three spots in the Rumble. But yeah, so I thought that was great, and I, I love every second of it. And I I kind of hope that this year we get, because uh, Matt Cardona has copyrighted Zack Ryder. I was hoping that he would come out around number six or seven in a rumble with Zack Ryder with the music, and they get thrown out faster than the Santino Morella, freak out, run to the back, and then come back out with Matt Cardona ripping up the Zack Ryder gear, and then have a nice long run in the rumble. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, and I was okay with that, by the way, because I'm not a toxic fan who gets mad when my fantasy booking doesn't come true. <laughs> but to see what Foley did was truly... Like, I remember watching that. I was 16, and I'm watching that. Or as, as, before my 16th birthday, I was 15. And I remember watching that going, that is one of the best things I've ever seen in wrestling. It was just so cool. All right. Uh, the next question, uh, everybody has talked ad nauseum about this, so I don't want to spend an extra long amount of time specifically about this one moment in his career. I'm just going to ask you guys a simple question. Is the Hell in a Cell bump the most impressive bump in pro wrestling? For what it was, what it is, has there been one since, was there one before it? Uh, do you think the Hell in a Cell bump is the most impressive bump in pro wrestling? And if it's not... Can you think of one immediately that comes to mind that could that could be close to question or like challenging it? The, the, I, would say, I would say impressive, no. Terrifying, and insane, and awe-inspiring and memorizing, yes. Iconic, absolutely. Impressive, not in the slightest. 
when I think impressive bumps, I'll just go back to the Royal Rumble one more time. Logan Paul and Ricochet, what they did jumping across the ring, that was impressive. That was impressive. That, the, the Hell in a Cell bump was iconic, legendary, and fucking stupid. <laughs> Mr. Mac? The match, the match, one, the match Um, Two, they, they, bast, like, they bastardized it so much. Like, Rikishi falling off into a hay truck. Like what? Three years later, like it was embarrassing. Um, you know, bump wise, New Jack throwing that dude off the scaffold, and I can't remember the name of the guy. Vic Grimes. Yeah, Vic Grimes. Dude, he took a hell of a bump. Now I know it wasn't planned, but he took yeah, kill him. Yeah. <laughs> legit kill him. Yeah, like he took a hell of a, a bump and he survived. Um, Foley's bump, yeah, visually was like amazing. The match sucked. Like again, like. This is like this is the match you put on. Like, um, it was terrible. Um, and then how they tried to keep like playing it year after year with Foley going through. You know, obviously, you know there was cages then. You know that were rigged to you know have the ceilings fall or you know everything else. Like it just it it was like it was like the Fandango day. It came off organically, and then WWE tried to make it their own, and they ruined it over time. Al, what you think? I like that match, Bobby. <laughs> um, I think it was super cool. Um, that match was one of the when you know we started this whole shebang. Uh, that was literally, I think, the first match on your list for me of things to watch. So that match means a little bit more to me as far as like my personal wrestling journey. Shut the fuck up, Bobby. You're such an asshole. <laughs> and the people the people on the podcast, I don't know what she's talking about. You're such a dick, man. Um That's what she said. <laughs> you bitch. Yeah, I know. I did just say it. <laughs> doesn't work. Anywho, um, I mean, yeah, are there probably some more impressive bumps? I guess, I mean, I might say, like, the spear in the TLC2 match may have been, like, a more impressive bump, you That's know. That's a good call. That's a good call, Allison. What, Bobby? You're actually, like, praising something I said? Will marked up. I, I literally just marked it down as you were telling me. I'm gonna, <laughs> because that never happens. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, post production, can we uh, mute it? <laughs> All right, I'm clipping that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, yeah, there's definitely more impressive bumps, but at the time, you know, I thought it was fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, fuck you, Bowie. Uh, after he went through the cage, went off the cage, knocked it around, three faces of Foley, um, I'm going to uh, to cut it back just a second and bring up a short feud before we go into the, the title run. But the Chainsaw Charlie feud. Uh, Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack held the tag titles, but Mankind and Terry Funk were feuding. 
I think that is genius writing. When you talk about goofy writing, Superbeard, I think that is genius. That one set is feuding, but then their alter egos are best friends and tag team champions. I always loved that storyline. Uh, January 4th, 1999, uh, there was a match between Mankind Corporate Rock Lots of interference. Ken Shamrock comes in. Billy Gunn comes in and beats the shit out of him. Uh, corporate, the the corporation is involved. Stone Cold's hey, you, music hits. Some respect. What? Daddy ass. Daddy ass. Uh, he attacks Ken Shamrock. The corporation comes in. DX comes in. Stone Cold's music hits. He lays the rock out with a chair. One, two, three. Mick Foley wins the WWF championship. Uh, we know all know the Tony Schiavone, the famous, you know, don't change the channel. They're about to put the belt on Mick Foley, whatever, you know, like that'll put butts in seats or, you know, the famous Schiavone line. Uh, so we've got up to his first title run in 99. Uh, Superbeard, uh, what did, like, the impression of what it meant to finally put the belt on Foley after he had been in the, the business for almost 20 years and now he gets his first singles championship run. Uh, what did you think it meant at that point for McMahon to put the belt on Foley? The day WCW died. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, first off, it was not only a win for mankind or Mick Foley or whoever, like the show, like, I, he's like, you know what, I finally made it. It was a win for Jim Ross. Because Vince, like I said, brought him in to fail, brought him in to make Jim Ross look bad. And here he is now, so over that they're like, yeah, we can put the title on him. He can carry the company. And so it was a big proving moment for Jim Ross, but I think for, for Mick Foley especially, it was, it was just it was validation of everything he has done. It was the goal. It's, every wrestler who gets in the business, that's their goal. I don't care if they end up becoming just a mid-card guy. When you start in a business, it's to win the world championship. And the celebration that came and the, the genuine emotion on his face told you it all that he felt validated. He felt like he was seen. And I mean, kudos to Vince McMahon for pulling the trigger. Uh, because, I mean, it was also kind of unexpected. Because I don't think anybody going into that match thought he had a chance. And, you know, it was pre-recorded, but even then, I mean, we didn't live in the social media days we live now, so it wasn't really out there until Tony Schiavone, you know, gave up the script and, you know, killed his entire company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was... It showed the... it. You know what it showed mostly is that he had earned the respect of the biggest name in business, Vince McMahon. He had proven his work ethic and proven his ability to work a crowd to the point where Vince McMahon said, we're going to put the title on you, son. And that's a big deal. Bobby, what do you think it means to put the belt on Mick Foley? Um, I think it meant a lot, especially for WWE as a company, WWF at that time. Um, that they did this for a territory guy like this was not you know if you look at territory guys I, I wouldn't really classify a lot of champions before him as territory guys like even rick flair at that point in time was already a main man um when he won the belt so yeah you know they might have worked in territory wrestling but 
they were not territory guys. You know, Randy Savage, um, you know, even Warrior. Um, you know, to me, like, this was this was a big stepping stone for WWE. You know, I, I will say it wasn't Shivani's fault. It wasn't him that killed the company. I'd say it was Bischoff because Bischoff fed him the line. Um, but to me, like, I when he when Mick Foley won the belt that night, like, it leads me to Neil Armstrong. And it wasn't uh, one small step for man. It's a one giant leap for mankind. And that's what I think about <laughs> when Clever. Mick Foley. Mischievous fuck, Bobby. Thanks. Um, that's what I think about, like, when Foley won that belt. And this was the most, um, and I know uh, Superbeard said this earlier, F. Vince Russo. I'm very PG. Um, <laughs> Since he... when? <laughs> <laughs> Just in case my daughter ever tunes in. Um, but this was the most Russo finish of a match ever. Like, this, this was all, like, Vince Russo. Like, I don't care if anybody wants to discredit Vince Russo um, on anything. This had to be a Vince Russo finish because you had almost – you had more people from the locker room out there than you did at uh, Briscoe's on stage um, memorial. Like, there were so many people out there. It was so – it was just so, like – infatuated with everybody and fully to pull out the rocky line of yo adrian like you could tell it was pure emotion from foley it was pure emotion and it was cool like and i would say again not knowing that it was 100 percent vince russo if it was this was the greatest thing vince russo ever did and probably the stupidest thing that eric bischoff ever did and I think the, the finger poke of doom was that night as well, if I'm not mistaken. It was. Yeah. So, yeah, WCW, WCW dug a grave that night and dug a hole that they could not get out of. By the way, the reason I always blame Tony Schiavone for that is not because he said the line, it's the way he delivered it. Like, oh, that'll put butts in the seats. I'm not sure if Eric Bischoff fed him that part of the line, and he may have. But the pure disdain in his voice, that's all Tony. So I blame, I, I always blame Eric Bischoff, and he even, like, he is to blame. Like, he'll always say he's not, and then by the end of the conversation, he always takes blame for, for ending WCW. Um, all right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You're good. How was it? I was rambling. <laughs> <laughs> um, after he won the title, uh, the 2000s before he departed and went into the TNA and then all the after effects and then his returns and his not returns and uh, we kind of saw Foley kind of fade off into the distance. He went through the 2000s run. Um, I don't want to take away too much from next week's episode because we round out this trio of episodes by specifically covering that 2000 run with the Royal Rumble match between Cactus Jack and Triple H going into the Hell in a Cell match, leading up to Foley getting his only main event at WrestleMania. Um, but I don't want to gloss over this part of his career too much, though, because you you won't unfortunately won't be here next week, Superbeard. Uh, what do you think about that trio of matches and what it meant for Foley's career at that point? Because at this point, he's multi-time hardcore champion, multi-time tag champion. He's been in every successful promotion in the world. He's held the world title a few times. He's had the banger matches with The Rock and the I Quit and the empty arena match. Uh, he's been off the top of every cage WWE has to throw at him. But now in the 2000s, he's kind of became 
that locker room general kind of person, that old guy that's giving the rub. He's helping put over young talent, the guys that are coming in. Your Randy Orton's Edge is getting ready to take off of as a superstar. Uh, Triple H is getting ready to take off as a superstar. Uh, I don't know why I said Randy Orton in 2000 because Orton didn't come in until later. But you guys kind of you you kind of smelling what I'm stepping in with it is that by the the 2000s run he was putting these younger guys over. Um, it, kind of keeping it short and sweet, Superbeard. What did you think about the the two thousands run version of Mick Foley? Um, well, to be honest, I look back at a lot of his career very fondly now. I was never a fan of his until that run, because that's when Mick Foley showed up. Yeah, and that's when I like, oh, he's a real deal. He's a genuine human being. He is a genuine guy, and he is putting on these bangers of matches that were hardcore but not over the top like and that was my thing I was like as long as it's not over the top I'm cool with it and it I think it redefined hardcore wrestling and he redefined the careers or pushed the careers of Edge and Randy Orton and Triple H and everybody else and I this is when I actually fell in love with him as a character and as a, as a wrestler and I've now since gone back and, and, and watched a lot of the other stuff I'm like oh this actually is a lot better than I remember and so I would say that that it not only was he pushing new talent and putting them over, I think it garnered him a lot more fans, and it just cemented him as the legend that he truly is. Because those promos, like forget the matches, all the promo work during those times, my God, just and the stuff with him and Stephanie, jeez, man, just so good. So, I, I, yeah, he's, he truly cemented himself as a Hall of Fame legend in that time period. Bobby, what did you think about the 2000s run of the, the Foley? Yeah, I agree. Like, I think, um, you know, to me, I would equate this to Skinamax. Like, this is softcore Mick Foley. Um, he's, still <laughs> oh doing, he's still doing all the stuff, but you don't see it as much. Like, he's, he's talking he more than the seats. Um, you know, his stuff like Rock and Sock, I thought Rock and Sock was brilliant. Like the everything they did was just gold. And it wasn't just because Dwayne Johnson is the greatest actor in history. Um it's because <laughs> Rock, the character, and Mick Foley, mankind, took it to a new level. And they went out there not only to make us as fans love them. They went out there, I think, and genuinely trying to like pop each other and make each other smile. And what entertained them entertained us. So yeah, he was still doing the hardcore matches with you know thumbtacks and fire and blah blah blah. But it wasn't every match. And again, that's why I say it's softcore. It's it's Skinamax. Like this is the Mick Foley that I want to see more and more and more and. You know, is is there a uh, is there a, a you know OnlyFans that I could buy the extended versions of? You know, like this this really I think was Mick Foley at his best, Mankind at his best, and I think this was truly his best WWE run. All right, I got one more question for you, and this is a serious one. Super uh-huh. Beard, I'm going to have you start, then Bobby, and then Al will wrap us up. How in the hell did Mick Foley get a plain white sock as over as he fucking did? 
How did Sako change wrestling? It became synonymous. One, the mandible claws already, like, it's the only wrestling move you can genuinely put yourself in as far as, like, a submission hold when he explains how he does it. And then the when he did the, the hospital scene with Mr. McMahon and the Bubbles the Clown and he introduced Sako with the hand puppet. And just, what do you guys think? How, how the hell did he get a... Uh, you know, a gym sock over as well as he did. Simple. Goofy wrestling for life. <laughs> just, it was so absurd that it worked. And it just, and he, and he, given that to somebody else, it doesn't work. There are only certain people who could pull it off. One of those is Santino Morella with the Cobra. And we've had how many great moments between the Cobras and Sako? <laughs> like, it's just, because he's so creative and so good and he listens that segment that introduced Stocko was a taped segment <laughs> the crowd popped hard he's like okay alright there's something there and as Mankind became a goofier character it worked because it was still kind of psychotic it was almost like R-Truth uh, and Little Jimmy like it was this Sako had a personality without saying a word. And so that's why it worked. He just he was very creative. He was very good at what he did. He was always underappreciated for his promo skills. And part of that proof is getting Sako over. In these, you know, like the This Is Your Life with the Rock and the Rock and Sako, the This Is Your Life, which arguably went a little long, but what a great segment. And like Sako again plays a part. And it's all it took was just understanding your role as now you're a goofy mankind and so why not have a little sidekick yeah you know rick steiner did that in the 80s with alex who was his hand puppet um he just had th that drawn um you know I, one thing I, I give credit to rick steiner and both uh, mick foley is i'm glad that my hand and my socks don't talk because i'd be embarrassed really publicly about that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, like... Emotional, damn it! But, yeah, and, you know, like, even, like, you know, um, Saturn got challenged with that, with Moppy. And, obviously, Moppy and Saturn's career is a lot different than Foley and Sako's career, or even Rick Steiner and Alex. And I'm pretty... I dare, dare to say most people don't even know who Alex is with Rick Steiner, but... Um, Dude, to get a sock over, like, that's that's huge. Like, you know, when you talk about Ric Flair could wrestle with a broomstick, Mick Foley got a character over with a broom. Like, this was his broomstick. And it wasn't having to go out there and perform a match. It was he created Mr. Sacco, and people know who Mr. Sacco is. Like, it's it's he created Kermit the Frog. Um, he created Mickey Mouse. Like, he created this other character that we don't believe and you know they've they've tried since with you know um uh what is it the the doll that uh, lily. Alexa, yeah lily. lily yeah like they've tried and it it doesn't work it just has not worked but he did he made it work so to create something like that it says a ton for him um i don't know if the writing team was part of that i don't know if russo was part of that I'm pretty sure Cornette was not part of that. Um, but whoever came up with it was absolutely brilliant. And the fact 
that it wouldn't have been as brilliant if they didn't have a performer like Mick Foley bringing it to life. Al, you're wrapping her up tonight. Closing thoughts on Sako. Um, I think it is impressive that he got a sock over. Um, he talks about in the WWE Hidden Treasure show, um, about like making up Sako. I forget the whole story, but he is the one that came up with the whole thing. Um, and that there are different there are different versions of Sako. There's the Richard the, the Richie Posey versions, which were the, like the TV versions. And then, like, the ones he drew, the hand drew for house shows and stuff, yeah. Yeah. And and, and don't forget the Hall of Fame where Sako wore a tuxedo. Right. Truth. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, the only thing that you can say is, like, it's so Mick Foley. You know what I mean? Like, that only Mick Foley could get a fucking sock over. You know, like the guy who said that the one guy who they thought wouldn't get over ever was able to do something as silly as getting a plain white gym sock over that he kept in his pants. Like, <laughs> all right, so Allie, just in all fairness, we we all keep a sock in our pants, especially at the beach. <laughs> On that <laughs> note, oh, <my> <laughs> On that one, sir. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. all right uh <laughs> super beard i'm sad that you won't be here for the triple h conversation because i'm curious to to deep dive with you some on how those two guys played off of each other um but it's been a blast having you having you hang out and chat about some wrestling with us man this is the the chance plug your stuff tell everybody what you got going on over at geeks and noobs uh put yourself over for everybody yeah absolutely uh one i will be in the chat for that for that triple h uh, discussion for sure um yeah ladies and gentlemen you can find me at twitch.tv slash the geeks and noobs or on youtube at youtube.com slash tgn networks uh i'm also a part of the pwc i'm on there pretty much seven days a week at this point uh i pretty much stream seven <coughs> days a week now so you can also find me at twitch.tv slash panda wrestling company find me on tiktok at uh super beer that's the easiest way to find me my link tree has all the links you need We've also got new merch up. I've got a Super Beard shirt now. We got TGN shirts. Uh, friend of the show, Ginger Ninja, has more merch on my shop than I do. Um, <laughs> uh, partially my fault. I made him make a bucket hat as well as a, a, a tumbler. But yeah, so you can get all that there. Uh, the links are again all in my bio. You can find me there. So hit me up, and I'm I'm all for talking. I talk not just wrestling. You know, the geeks and noobs is all about you know comic book movies and stuff like that. So uh, we have a really big episode coming up this week on Thursdays. That's Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we're going to be talking the Flash trailer. Uh, also, Tuesday nights is Wrestling with Toxicity at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then, like I said, I'm all over the Panda Wrestling Company like seven days a week. Bobby, man, pledge your stuff. Yeah, you can always find me on Twitter where I will say stuff that you might not like. But, hey, you know what? It brings a smile to your face, or at least my face, that you're commenting on it and saying, hey, I don't like that. Um, Twitch, you know, you can find me on here, you can follow me on here, but you're not going to see a thing about me doing anything on here. Um, and of course, my accounting page, which is on the Linktree account. So just go to my linktree.com. All of this stuff is that yellow shoe guy, and you can find the accounting. But most importantly, go to TikTok because I will put up some old school, new school, 
all kinds of school. Did I say nude or nude? It sounded like you um, said nude school. I think he okay, said either one. Whatever TikTok <laughs> will allow, I will go on there as well for Yellow Shoe Guy. Um, it's not just pro wrestling. Sometimes we do some roller coaster stuff and some theme parks now that I'm back in Florida. We're going to be doing a lot more of that kind of stuff, too. So follow me on TikTok. We're at 16.7 thousand followers right now. On our way to 100,000 followers, we go live. We try not to get banned. 29 but, you know, days without either one of you getting banned. Do we have a, did you update the board for us? Well, I did like three times, and then I erased it to write other things, and I never wrote it back. So, But 29 days without being banned. I'm going to have to meet up with Bobby in Orlando and, and hit some theme park stuff because I'm a huge theme park guy, too. So. Are you in Orlando? I'm just outside Orlando, Crystal River. So. Oh, dude, yeah. Bobby, yeah. you might actually get a friend. Don't embarrass me, please. I like Super Beard. <laughs> that would be, be weird with my meta Oculus. Like, I've never played with someone exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Ninja's in Jacksonville, and he goes to Orlando all the time. Really? I'm going to be so mad if you meet Superbeard and Jaxbo both before me. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, I work I work at Andretti, so just pop in anytime. Shit, I ate there last time I was in Orlando. Did you really? Yes. Oh shit. Yeah, dude, I'm I, yeah, I'm a I'm a man of Andretti's. Holy no, shit. no. Yeah, no no putting over people or whatever. No yeah. free shoutouts. No free shoutouts. <laughs> Parting right outside of Top Golf. <laughs> Do you find yourself wanting to call Andrade's? No, just because, like, because I, I don't even think of Andrade. I'm just saying. That was for you, Allison. Charlotte's. Allison, plug your stuff. Tell everybody you're going to make a comic this week. You will. <laughs> um. <laughs> Just for that, I'm gonna. <laughs> you make the comic, you butthole. Anyways, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitters and Tiki Taki at JustAGirl918. I'm at 751 followers on TikTok. Only, uh, what, how many is that? Only 149. Thank you. To go. Uh, so please follow me on the Tiki Taki so that I can go live. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna make a comic, yada, yada. <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm gonna do one this week out of spite for it. Just completely out of spite. Hi, you know, as the person that has a real job, <laughs> um, you know, I don't always have time to do... That remark. <laughs> I don't always have time to do all of the extra things on top of all the second job that I have doing this podcast. Fair enough. But, uh, no, I'll fucking make a comment this week. Fuck you, Will. <laughs> yeah, my, dude, my job is real. I just play. <laughs> I know, Bobby. Bobby's got a real job. But all Bobby has to do for these shows is show up. Until next week when we get his going and then he actually has to host a show. I have to look pretty. Huh. Uh, if you yeah, like our... What? I have to look pretty because I did not work on myself. No, absolutely not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you like our intro music, check out uh, underscore Hill Tactics. That's uh, Jay Land on the beat on TikTok. Uh, 
He does all of our intros and outro music. Uh, if you want to follow my friends, follow Mr. B-Roll. Follow Game Changer Wrestling. Uh, follow Self Bet Wrestling, Bree Stout. Uh, all the guys at Panda Wrestling Company. Follow the Creation World for, uh, crew. That's Lord, Cuss a Lot, my boy Travis Pointer, M-A-T-T-R-I-D-D-E-R, Matt Ritter at Smackin' It Raw, Katie Wrestling 13, Pretty Kyle at Apron Bump. Follow Brian's House Random. Follow all my friends. Uh, Superbeard, I love you, Bubba. Thanks for coming by. Yellow Shoe Guy, you're here because it's your job. Al, I appreciate you. <laughs> but... Now as we close another episode of Watch Pods and Cheer Shots, I'll take a minute. Thank you for listening. Remind you to go wherever you do anything on the internet. Like, follow, subscribe, unsubscribe, then subscribe again. Leave a comment telling me how great I am or how terrible Bobby is. Either way, it helps the algorithm and it helps find new listeners. If you're feeling really generous and be one of the VIP people, head over to Patreon.com and donate to the Rivet City Radio Podcast Network. You get some fantastic swag. We get some fantastic guests. It's a win-win. Four. The Super Beer for the LSU guy and for the boss bitch. I'm the Will Gray. Thanks for stopping by and listening, my people. Bye bye. And you are people. <laughs>